This week, Stephen Matelski gives us a front row view to the inside of Canadian organized crime. Yeah, just a little back history. Uh, their father, Paolo Violi, in the 1970s was the underboss of the Montreal mob. So the Montreal has long historically been considered to be the sixth family from New York because they're directly connected to the Bonanno crime family. And uh, ironically, Paolo Violi, while he was the underboss in Montreal, this is in the late 70s, he allowed a undercover, Bob Menard, to rent a room above his gelato shop for six years. And this is where Paolo Violi... Uh, ho- this was in, in downtown Montreal, Quebec. So just to give some context, he he was uh, Bob Menard was able to hook up recording devices and years and years of, of mob information, not just Montreal, but the inner workings of New York City and the Bonanno crime family and the commission. Welcome to Game of Crimes. everybody, welcome back. This is the first episode of Game of Thrones where Murph has left me, the traitorous bastard, and moved to Florida. I am Morgan Wright, the host. Um, apparently, I'm going to be the host of the show in Loudoun County because Murph is doing old people things in Florida. I got my uh, black socks on and my sandals, my Bermuda shorts. I'm oh, looking Jesus. good. <laughs> Early bird buffet, here I come. Oh my God. Hey, you still can't find shit. I'm looking at you on the, you know, the camera here. You got nothing on your wall, nothing on the shelves. Hell, I'm sorry. Have you found your underwear yet? Or are you still wearing the same oh, stuff? Yeah. No. Well, you know, you can, you can get three or four wears out of it before you have change. Hey, but I do have something. I got fresh paint on the wall behind me. Not on the rest of the room, but behind me I do. And why do you have fresh paint on that wall? Well, the wife, she decided she wanted to compare different colors. And this is the wall she chose to put the contrasting colors on. Yeah, so you're not losing your eyesight. There actually were three different colors on there. Yeah, and you know, and, and I started to leave it like that, but it looked like I was from Kansas, and I didn't want to do that. So no, I hell no. It. Well, if you wanted that, you would have needed shag carpeting, that dark, you know, wood paneling, you know, and a <laughs> mobile home, a trailer, and a cow walking through the back here, just like your cats do. <laughs> I know. Well, hey. Let's get into this because we got a lot of stuff to cover. And again, this is our first episode where Steve is truly remote. You know, he's he's coming into us from his new home office down there near Orlando, Florida. But hey, guys, welcome back. Uh, by the way, episode 20 uh, with Chris Weissel. We got a lot of great comments on that. And, and the pictures were great, too. I mean, I posted them on the webpage. People are saying, hey, where are the pictures? I'm going, well, they're on the webpage, <laughs> you know, like where I said they were. You know, but, you know, but uh, yeah, and we actually had one of our regulars... Um, and he actually wrote back and he said, hey, man, this was, he thought part two was one of the best podcasts he's ever heard, because that's where we really got into the the hunt for the uh, Cali cartel and all yeah. the operations they were doing. And Chris knows his stuff, man. No notes. He just sat there and he just spewed it out of his head. He was a virtual fountain of knowledge. Unbelievable. You know, and it's cool, too, because I, I know why everybody wants to see the pictures, because we talked about what Chris looked like back when he was in Miami days, and they wanted to see him. And he's got that picture of him and Pedro Pascal for the opening for uh, season three of Narcos. And uh, yeah. I didn't realize he was that big. He's a big guy. You know? He is. He makes Pedro. Big boy. Well, it looks like uh, the the scene uh, when he was Prince Oberon uh, in uh, Game of <laughs> Thrones, giant. and he's and he's the you know the the mountain. Yeah, it, look, it looks like that too. But he didn't crush his head in this one, so that's all good. Yeah. So yeah. Hey, well, guys, well, hey, let's let's get into this. So let's just some quick house 
housekeeping before we get started again. If you guys like what you've heard and if you like what you're going to hear, just head on over there to Apple. Rate us five stars. It helps out a lot. It's magic. It's Magic Kingdom. It's Disney, Walt Disney World, Disney on Ice, whatever you want to call it. It's the magic stuff. It really helps us a lot, so we really appreciate it. Head on over to GameOfCrimesPodcast.com. That's where we got the pictures of Chris, and we got some good ones coming up. We'll tell you about that episode here in just a minute. And we've got, we got our merch over there, so we're going to be doing some new things on merch. Uh, we've got our new design for our logo, so we'll be getting that out to you, our mailing list. Follow us on that social media on the interwebs, Game of Crimes at on Twitter, uh, Game of Crimes Podcast on Facebook, or maybe it's going to be called Meta. Depends on what the Zuckerberg man does with that. Meta. Meta. Metaverse. Jeez. And Game of Crimes Podcast. I'm not going to say that. I'm going to say on the on the on the site formerly known as Facebook, like Prince, the artist formerly known as yeah. Prince. It's like sounds like Meta Cheese. Meta Cheese. Meta Cheesy. Meta Meta Cheesy. Here, I got a Meta Fart for you if you want a Meta yeah, Cheesy. There you go. And there by the go. way, but the place you got to be, guys, we uh, we had a really good episode last week. We posted a teaser of it, and we've already had a bunch of people subscribe. Go over to patreon.com slash Game of Crimes. We talked about the shit show that is Loudoun County, Virginia right now, and with the sex assaults that were being covered up in the schools. I'm telling you that this guy needs to be fired. He covered up stuff. How can a guy who's the head of a school district with 80,000 students with a degree in education, a doctorate, misinterpret the question, which was, have there been any assaults in bathrooms? Well, I misunderstood the question. Really? Do you misunderstand the question when somebody goes, hey, how many homicides have you had in your neighborhood? Well, I thought you meant only homicides of people with one leg. I didn't know it involved both legs, you know? Oh, you want it on my street? You want the whole neighborhood? Well, you know, he's acting like Bill Clinton. It uh, depends on what the definition of this is. <laughs> I do that well. In fact, we we're talking right before we started. I was teaching an interview interrogation course for the federal government at the Mayflower Hotel the night Bill came on and said, I did not have sexual relations with that woman. Uh, who was that? Oh, yeah, Miss Lewinsky. Uh, uh, so, by the way, real quick. I'll break it down for you. I, I was vindicated. I said in front of the Secret Service FBI, I said that he's being deceptive and here why. He hit for the trilogy in one statement. He says, I did not, a non-contracted denial. That means you tend to be deceptive when you say, I did not, I would not, instead of I can't, I didn't, I wouldn't. And then he said, have sexual relations. Why did he use that term, sexual relations, Steve? Because it was involved in the lawsuit with Parla Jones. Sexual relations had a very specific connotation. So he he actually, you know, what he did was it was a specific denial. I did not have sexual relations. And then with that woman, you know, another specific denial. So it's like, well, what about any woman? You know, I did not have sexual relations with that woman. And then he couldn't even remember her name, Miss Lewinsky. So I said, you know, non-contracted denial. Then it was followed by a qualified statement. He qualified the type of sexual relations he had with that woman, Miss Lewinsky, and that woman is a specific denial. So non-contracted denial, qualified statement, specific denial. He hit for the trilogy. But anyway, you'll find out more about that, guess where? On patreon.com slash Game of Crimes, where we talk yeah, we about the shit back. show. Yeah, that is Loudoun County. We did not hold back, and we called for the firings. I don't care what side of the aisle you're on, if you're D or an R or an independent, doesn't matter to me. Got to protect kids, got to protect old people like Murph, got to protect kids, our most vulnerable people. And by the way, I was really pissed off and personal about it. Why? Because my daughter went to went to that same high school, used that same bathroom that the sex assault. So if you want to hear what it is, you got to go to patreon.com slash Game of Crimes and understand why I am so upset about this. And also... And and well, you might understand why Murph moved from Loudoun County, Virginia to Orange County, Florida. Orange County, Florida. Orange County, the home of oranges. There yeah. There you go. Send or me bananas. a box of oranges. Yeah, bananas. We've we, we got three <laughs> banana trees in this yard. 
Oh my God. Well, don't send me any bananas, Murph. <laughs> well, they're, they're coming down. Trust me. <laughs> I don't want to see your bananas either. Okay. Oh, hey, and, and, and the other day we had two visitors, a six foot alligator and a 10 foot alligator at, down on the, the lake behind our house. Well, I know where to send some of our haters. <laughs> there you go. Hey, we can take... Oh, no, yeah, that's... Yeah, it. hey, okay, come we, here, boys. We would never do that officially. Officially. No, I can neither confirm nor deny, Senator. And I head on over to, uh, if you want to just support us, paypal.com and use our email, gameofcrimespodcast at gmail.com or paypal.me slash gameofcrimes, whatever it makes it easier for you to part with your hard-earned money and support us in our hard-earned business. We really appreciate this. But Steve, as always, a quick disclaimer. This is a show about crime. We talk about bad people doing bad things and bad people doing bad things to good people. We take the show seriously. Oh, you, you already know. <laughs> we never take ourselves serious. That's why we have fun. Violation of Title 14, 20, Section 22, subparagraph A. Cannot take yourself seriously in interstate commerce. So we cha, do not cha, cha. do that. But before we get into the rest of that stuff, Murph, guess what time uh -oh. it is? <laughs> it's time, time for, for the first official remote small town, small town police blotter. Keep up. You there must be a delay up. between our screens here. No, no, you're just slow. <laughs> Don't blame it on the delay. You're just slow. All right, Steve. And I love the ones. This one, again, I, I had to mea culpa because Gary Warden sent us something and I failed to include it. So we had it in last episode. So got his follow-up story leading off with it, this one. So Gary Warden via our Game of Crimes podcast at gmail.com. Man allegedly caught with pants down, genitals in sex toy in gas station parking lot. This could only happen in one place, apparently, Watsontown, Pennsylvania. Did you know a Miffenberg, not even the town, a Miffenberg man came close to getting caught in the middle of a sex act in public. Instead, he got caught after he allegedly fell asleep. No, he fell asleep. He allegedly <laughs> was doing something else. How do you allegedly fall asleep? No, you're asleep in his parked vehicle with his pants down and genitals in a sex toy in the parking lot Aww. of a gas station. How, how just, I mean, how humiliating is it for a guy when you can't even finish the act with a sex toy? Or how many times did he finish the act and he wore himself out? He was fatigued and had to take a nap. Well, according to uh, the state police, Corey Spriggle will now face indecent exposure charges. Uh, he was found asleep behind the wheel of his vehicle at 6.30 a.m. Thursday morning with his pants open and his genitals in a sex toy at the Sitgo gas station parking lot on Main Street. Charges are being filed. Trooper Colton E. Killian is investigating. I would not want to touch that evidence. Uh, literally. <laughs> you know, every name, town name, person name, everything you mentioned there sounds like something out of a Harry Potter movie. Oh, man, Miffenberg. <laughs> the Gryffindors, you know, the Miffenbergs. Anyway, well, guess what, Steve? Uh, apparently it must be, uh, you know, it's like Taco Tuesday. People love their tacos. But apparently... Not in Florida, Steve. Here's another Florida story. Woman 20 arrested for battering her mother with a pair of tossed tacos. There has been a domestic taco battery, Florida police report. Braden Lankford was arrested late Saturday evening for allegedly striking her mother in the head with two thrown tacos inside the family's residence. According to the affidavit, Lankford and the 50-year-old victim were arguing about the cleanliness of the house when apparently they demonstrated it wasn't. And uh, the suspect, Lankford, became upset and threw two tacos from the dining room. They hit the victim in the head as she was sitting on a couch. When the police arrived, the victim had food debris all over her on the couch and on the back of her shirt. All I want to know is the crime was not, well, you know, <laughs> domestic violence battery, not a funny, not a laughing matter. But the bigger crime in this... She, she, she just wasted Wasting two tacos. Tacos. Damn right. <laughs> Damn. 
It, well, you know, it wasn't an assault. It's like a Benihana. She was throwing the food over there to see if they could catch it in her mouth. Just catch it in your mouth. Hey, catch this. You know, I tried that one time, too, with the watermelon. It didn't go so good in college. <laughs> I said, here, catch this. Tried to play William Tell. I said, hey, you put an apple, uh, you know, in your mouth. Let's try this. But that didn't work Well, either. the receiver just, if she quit talking, you know, she could have caught the damn tacos. That's right. Anyway, but, hey, this one comes from, from the area you formerly used to live in, to live in, just south of us here, Stafford County, Virginia. Obviously, this hiding spot was ineffective. Stafford cop detailed chase of DUI suspects. So apparently what happened, uh, there were these two guys out there were drag racing at more than 90 miles an hour on Jefferson Davis Highway, which is US-1. You know, we've all been on that down there, right? So they got one of the guys. Uh, he turned around, activated his emergency lights. The first guy pulls over. He gets arrested because he's drunk and drag racing, right? But the other guy, he keeps going. Well, here's what I like about it, though. The police report says the other suspect later identified as 27-year-old Christian Piranio, refused to stop and fled into the apartment complex behind the post office. Deputy M.A. Holub found the vehicle that uh, Piranha was driving parked catawampus. That's the official word, parked catawampus, <laughs> near 112 Pine Circle. A search of the surrounding area led to the discovery of the six-foot-tall, 225-pound Christian Piranha attempting con to conceal himself behind a six-inch diameter tree. Obviously, See, the hiding I, spot... Uh, <laughs> He does not understand the difference he? between cover and concealment, and he did not get either of those in this case. See, now, I know what cattywampus is, but I'm sure a lot of our listeners don't. Catawampus. He was part catawampus. That is, in a, that is a legal term, Your Honor. Yes, cat. Yeah. He was, he was part... Caddy corner. Caddy corner. Caddy, just all uh -huh. over the place. You know what it's like? It's like people with brand new cars who don't do like I do, which is park way the hell out there so you don't take up two spaces, but the ones that come in and park across two paces, spaces, catawampus, so that nobody can park next to them, those are the ones that end up getting their cars boxed in. Well, and you would think if you're trying to avoid the law, you know, you would blend in with your surroundings. You don't leave, it, leave your car catawampus in the freaking driveway. He didn't blend in with his surroundings. Speaking of blending <laughs> in with your surroundings, uh, guess what? It's what year was it, Murph? So, you have oh, to, this boy, comes out of go. the... No Again, I'm keeping it local because you moved out of the state, you traitorous bastard. The and, Norfolk, and if Virginia. I remember correctly, the last one I got right. Yeah, well, you know, you're two for like 15. So I'm three. Uh, I I'm three. <laughs> I wouldn't. It's not. It's not going to get you in the Hall of Fame, pal. So this comes from the Norfolk, Virginian on March 9th. Now you have to tell me what year was it. So let me read it first. The title of it is called "Shovers of the Queer." I kid you not. Shovers of the Queer. The Norfolk oh. police arrest a gang of five Italians. Why? Because they were passing counterfeit $1 pieces having been circulated in the city to such an extent that merchants and others who take in a large amount of silver have been greatly alarmed. In Tuesday's Virginia, it was stated that the money was being freely circulated here, and on that day, information was furnished to the police department, who said that, um, which led to the arrest of the gang who have been shoving the queer. Okay, on our fan page, we want to hear some interpretations of that term. Shoving, the, it's, it's right here, shoving the queer. So, Murph, was this on March 9th, 1898, March 9th, 1888, or March 9th, 1878? Oh, my God. Uh, 98, 1898. You're three for 16. <laughs> hey, all right. No, you got it wrong. I know. <laughs> That's, that's my. I don't care. <laughs> March 9th, 1888, five Italians were arrested for shoving the queer in Norfolk, Virginia. Yeah, well, 
Boy, we, there's a lot of comments we could make, but then we not going there. Not the going show. there. Not that there's anything wrong with it, according to Jerry Seinfeld. So, anyway, let's get into the fun part. <laughs> uh, only on Game of Crimes could you hear okay. a story like this, right? Shoving the queer. Uh, let's not do it. Let's. That's the headlines. So, so queer money is what it used to be called. So anyway. <laughs> Hey, we had some fun, like I said, last week, um, and this one is going to be fun, too, because, again, we bring back a token Canadian. We had Pam Barnum, episode three, and she could have kicked our ass, so we will not call her a token Canadian. We're both still deathly afraid of her. However, right. I'm kind of afraid of this guy, too, Stephen Matelski. When you look at his picture, and you'll see it on the webpage, for those of you who say, where are the pictures? It's always on the webpage. Go to the website. What's that web? What's that website? Gamacrimespodcast.com. You'll find it on there Al Gore's go. amazing internet. So what you will find here are pictures <laughs> of Stephen, and when you look at his picture, he looks like a total badass. But when you see him on the video or hear him talk, he's like a typically nice Canadian. And Murph, you're responsible for bringing this one uh, on the episode, so because he yeah. had the audacity to include you in some book he wrote. Oh, it's a bestseller, and uh, you know, and. Wherever, wherever Steve one, lives, one small Toronto. province of yeah of Canada. Yeah. <laughs> now he, you know, I remember Lou Velozzi we had on the undercover agent from ATF. Um, Stephen knew Lou, and Stephen was writing a book. He's also a college professor now. He's a retired police officer, and what he teaches at three different colleges. I think he told us right. And uh, the book's called Undercover. You know, which we want to give him a plug for that. And, uh, I, and, you know, so he called me and Lou made an introduction. I called Steve and, and uh, I told him, so, you know, my story is not undercover. It's about capturing Pablo. He's like, yeah, but the techniques that you guys use, you know, I think it really go well. So well, technically, Steve, you were what, undercover for just a little bit because they made you try and wear a balaclava for a little while. <laughs> oh, that one time. Yeah. Man, that's like putting a big freaking target. On target. Yeah. Shoot me. Shoot the, <laughs> shoot the gringo. Here's, here's the gringo. Uh, it's crazy. So, um, yeah, but no, this his book is out now. Uh, of course, you know, I'm in it and Lou's in it, and so you know it's going to be a bestseller. And Dominic Polifron is in it, another one of our guests. Absolutely. So, you know, I mean, support Steve. Listen to his story here, but support him with his book, man, because it's, it, it's actually worth the read. Maybe not my chapter, but the other is. Yeah, well, the one chapter. Yeah, just forget the chapter about Murph. But but I'm telling you guys, the other <laughs> thing you got to stay tuned for in this is he goes through and he talks about what they call a police agent. You'll have to listen to the episode to find out what it is. Is actually he becomes a made man in the Bonanno crime family. This is just unheard of. You know, I mean, this is Donnie Brasco stuff, Joe Pistone kind of stuff. You know, you're not kidding, Morgan. You know, I, I didn't. I guess I just never really thought about. it. I didn't think much about the New York mobs having, you know, infiltrated Canada and Toronto in that area up there. But wow. But like you said, to get that one thing on video, yep. you know, that, I mean, that's unheard of. So this is something special. You guys got to listen to this one. Yeah. So let's get into it. By the way, um, we go for the trifecta in this. I use psychological operations. I get him to apologize and say A, and we talk about beer, the three, the trifecta for Canadians. <laughs> so you'll have to see how this goes. So Steve, before we get started, I got to ask you, are you ready to play the biggest, baddest, most dangerous game of all, the game of crimes? Hey, everybody. Get in, sit down, shut up, and hold on. Bring on Steve Matelski, our new favorite Canadian. Where's Rosebud? I don't know. We'll figure it out. So if we were in, in, doing the intro for uh, our latest episode, 19-1, <laughs> and my cat just would not leave me alone. It's like, we got to get this done. So you can hear, actually, Steve, when I edit it, you can hear in the background just one little place going, meow. <laughs> she I'd was walking across, hitting my microphone, just meowing, laying, laying up against my chest. So, 
But I digress. Let's maybe we'll leave this in. Who knows? Yeah, yeah let's well, just start. Whatever. What the hell? Hey, we everybody, go. welcome to Game of Crimes. Today is today is another fine day because we have another person we're going to pick on from the great nation, our neighbors to the north, Canada. And they will, I guarantee you, just like Pam did, they will apologize us to us at the end for insulting <laughs> them. So let's welcome to the podcast the one, the only, the author. He is an author. He actually knows how to write, Murph. Undercover stories from the underworld of law enforcement, former Halton Regional Police and seconded to the RCMP, Stephen Matelski. Woohoo! Welcome, Stephen. Thank you so much, Murph and Morgan. I really appreciate you having me on. Hey, and, and his book is probably the best book that's ever been written. As long as you don't a, read the chapter on Murph. Yeah. There's a chapter in there about me. <laughs> I have no idea why, but thank you. Oh, thanks for that, Steve. I really appreciate it. Man, you it. must have been dragging the bottom of the barrel to finish that last chapter, pal. <laughs> well, he had, he had Lou Velozzi in there, and he thought, well, heck, what the, let's put a DEA guy in there. Well, the closest thing Murph ever did to undercover was getting sick on a trip to the Caymans. You know? <laughs> well, I got sick in Haiti. <laughs> oh, That's... man. Everybody gets sick in Haiti. <laughs> oh, my gosh. That's a rough place. <laughs> oh, man. Well, hey, well, Stephen, so, hey, welcome. This is fun, too, because we had a great— Thank you so much. Well, you say that now. Wait till we're done. You may <laughs> See, again, you're going to apologize for thanking us. Pretty. Why did I thank you guys? I'm so sorry. Um, yeah. But we, we promise not to stereotype our friends from Canada, even though you're going to hear a couple stories which he will stereotype himself. So, as we always do, Stephen, let's get started. We, we want to talk about and figure out what the hell possessed you to get into law enforcement. And this actually goes back to your dad— and a random meeting with the Canadian version of Starsky and Hutch. <laughs> yeah, it really was. I uh, was probably about eight years old. I grew up in, I was born in Toronto and raised there for a little bit. And then I moved to Mississauga, which is just a little suburb beside Toronto, Peel region. Yeah, down here we call that Mississippi. So you moved to Mississippi. <laughs> you moved, yeah, I moved to Mississippi, the northern version, Mississauga. And it was probably about 78, 79. My dad was working with the Toronto police, the, the big city uh, police service, uh, obviously in Toronto. And it was a hot day in the summer. Yeah, we do have hot summers in Canada. And I still remember being in the garage with my dad. We were like putzing around cleaning the garage. And this old beat up bucket of bolts rolls up, doesn't pull in the driveway, but stops right in front of the house. And I still remember as a kid thinking... This guys, these these guys are lost, or I hope they're turning around. Well, they put it in park, and it was about eighty five degrees that day, and the doors open, and I'll never forget. They both had long jeans, like cowboy boots, leather Starsky and Hutch coats, and long hair, and uh, the, you know the whole bit, the goatees. And my dad walks down. He says, "Stay here for a minute," and I'm I'm left in the garage, you know, sort of shaking in in, in my boots thinking, who the heck are these two guys? And my dad starts talking to them. And it was actually for a moment, I was actually afraid for my dad's well-being because these guys look like, um, you know, the the bad characters that would appear on a 70s show like Starsky and Look like DEA, just didn't they? Yeah. <laughs> they were lost going to a disco ball. <laughs> yeah. And my dad finally weighed me down. And I, I remember hesitantly walking down and it felt like in slow motion. And I'm like, who the hell are these guys my dad's talking to? Because my dad was always, you know, clean cut, clean shaven. And I'm standing there like, you know, quiet for about two minutes. And finally, my dad says, I want to introduce you to two friends of mine. And they could tell just probably from my body language that I was really nervous. And the, the one copper, I didn't know he was a copper. He leans over, opens up his leather coat 
and he had a handgun in one of those old shoulder holsters. And he said, don't worry, we're, we're friends with your dad. And that was my first encounter with, with not only, uh, you know, police, but these were two undercover guys that were friends with my dad that were on the way to a job and they thought, let's, let's stop by and say hello. So that was really my first encounter. So was it like friends with your dad or like, no, look, we're like friends with your dad, you know? <laughs> yeah, he owes somebody yeah, some like, money. Like friends of ours, friends, or, this thing of ours, this fr- fr- of friend ours. of mine. That's yeah, right. But you also went to some. What I thought was interesting too. Uh, I loved when I was in Toronto. The uh, FBI held their first international conference, and I got to speak at it. The FBI National Academy Associates, and they did uh, the tattoo. They did um, a lot of the different. Uh, just great pipe and drum, you know, just a lot of pageantry. There was a lot of neat stuff up in Toronto, uh, including getting standing next to the official Toronto Police Services moose, which is about, you know, eight feet tall. Have you seen that one? I don't think I've actually seen the big moose, but... (laughs) I've got a picture. They brought it to one of the Chiefs of Police shows. It is huge. I mean, it is huge, but love the pageantry and stuff. But you also went to some of the police games too, you know, and got to see the rough and tumble... uh, lifestyle going on yeah and i think those early days in in the late 70s when i would go with my dad to those games it was you know they'd have police agencies from all over canada coming and you know they'd have uh i still distinctly remember the tug of war and that was like the coveted almost like the heavyweight championship belt like who's the you know the strongest police service in terms of who's going to win this tug of war and that really had an impression on me as, as a young kid seeing all these officers uh, you know battling out on the field like uh like a gladiator gladiator like style and you know i grew up not fully thinking 100% i was going to to be to get into policing but when i look back now in 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 retrospect you know those were some of the indelible memories that really i think had sort of a uh, an effect on me uh, eventually doing this type of work yeah well even though it had this indelible effect you still started astray you thought about going to law school like canada needs another lawyer i mean what the hell <laughs> or anybody needs another lawyer it was a flip no offense to the lawyers listening to us we love you but why does canada need another lawyer why did you why were you going to do that well after i did my undergrad i i sort of was at that pivotal moment of you know a lot of my friends were getting out into the work world and you know, I had about four different avenues that I, I thought I would go and law school was one of them. And then I thought, you know, I really want to get into just working. I want to work. I want to earn some money. And that's sort of where policing, you know, came, came oh, no, about no, no, by fluke. It wasn't policing. You got out of your, you got out of university and you went to work at a beer store, my friend, <laughs> fellow Canadian. <laughs> oh, it wasn't right away policing. That's for sure. <laughs> Uh, so do what you got to do. So how much did the, did you take your pay in liquid form or did you actually sell the stuff and take cash? Oh, I, you know, I would have been, I would have easily taken pay in liquid form, but (laughs) to the looking back, it's one of the best jobs I've ever had. I worked there, uh, for even when I was in university, I worked there for about four or five years and never had one customer complaint because everybody's coming in to buy beer and they're going somewhere to drink beer and have fun. So, <laughs> I mean, the environment I worked in was was a blast, man. It was just it was just a great job. Never had an issue working there. Now, and one thing we didn't tell you guys yet is Stephen here is a uh, college professor, and all of his students are going to be listening to this and they're going to come into class drunk, and you better be forgiving. <laughs> Hey, now, while you were there, so an interesting thing, working at the beer store, was it just beer? Did you have liquor, you know, hard stuff or just beer? Yeah, in Canada, they they divvy it up. They have just the beer store. So uh, back then in, in the 90s, it was 
completely just beer. Now they have, you know, variations of these seltzers and whatnot, but back then it was just beer. And liquor stores, they call it the LCBO Liquor Control Board, is a completely separate shop where you would go to buy hard liquor. But they actually sell beer there too now. So, But the beer store is strictly, even to this day, is is strictly beer. Now, did you ever get robbed? Never got robbed. You know why? Because Canadians are nice. <laughs> <laughs> That's true. You guys are. That's not a bad like thing. I guess I, I, Morgan, I never had to deal with even an irate customer. It was just people were like, hey, what, brother, she, bring beer. What did I tell you? Uh, come well, in, hey, I need a beer, eh? Here you go. Oh, have a good day, eh? Probably didn't have any ugly Americans come in there. <laughs> and I have my stereotypical Canadian checklist here that I'm actually checking off myself, so. <laughs> well, we will talk about poutine at a, at a later date. But, uh... <laughs> oh, that, see, I, mm, mm. Nah, that I means didn't. something completely different down here. It, it, it's like Vegemite or... Uh, well, haggis, you know, that, that, that oh, oh my God, don't ever eat. It's like an acquired taste or lutefisk, lutefisk, as we've talked about before. Uh, so, ugh. but you did, you worked at the beer store, um, but you also worked at the lottery, right? You said that was kind of a fun job. Yeah, it was a contract job and we were able to tour the province in all the OHL, the Ontario Hockey League cities. And growing up as a, as a major hockey fan, still am, uh, the Toronto Maple Leafs was my, was my team and still is uh, with some losing years. But uh, Daryl Sittler and Lanny McDonald were uh, Hall of Fame players who played for Toronto in the 70s to the early 80s. And they signed on to show up in all these OHL cities. And it was really cool, guys. Like They gave us this huge budget and we had like a simulated ice rink built and we went to the biggest mall in each city in Ontario that had a hockey team and we set up a net we had the lottery uh kiosk so if you bought a lottery ticket you got a free shot to try to get the hole uh the puck in in the net there's a little hole and we kept this uh, scoreboard and the winner we would bring to the the hockey game at the end of the week and they would go on the ice to shoot for a big prize but to travel all over Ontario to see uh, the province I grew up in and to hang out with Daryl Settler and Lanny McDonald uh, was was pretty cool. And even Tiger Williams, I know um, not many people maybe down there know who Tiger Williams is. He was another infamous uh, tough guy. If you, if you Googled like top five hockey players with the most penalty minutes, Dave Tiger Williams <laughs> is going to come up. He was uh, legendary in Toronto. You know, Murph had a problem too on the hockey rink. He couldn't hit the hole either. That's why he never won <laughs> prizes. So... <laughs> It wasn't just that. <laughs> hey, now, Dave, uh, Tim Horton, was he, a, was he a hockey player? He was. He actually played for the Toronto Maple Leafs, and he played for the Buffalo Sabres. And the one interesting thing, and where I am, I'm, I'm near Hamilton, Ontario. The first Tim Hortons franchise, which obviously named after Tim, was opened in Hamilton, Ontario. And the thing I thought was really cool, uh, Buff Buffalo is like my home away from home. And before COVID, we were down there all the time, whether it was the Buffalo Bisons or the Sabres or the Bills and love the city. And I, I've always known Tim Hortons has been there. But about two years ago, when uh, we were down in the States on vacation, coming back from Myrtle Beach, I saw Tim Hortons franchises uh, yeah. in deep Pennsylvania and just really... I was just so impressed. It's like really cool to see it catching on in the northern states. Oh, it, it has. I was up to visit my sister and uh, brother-in-law and niece and nephews up in Minnesota. 
And it's it's all over Minnesota at the Great Mall of America. There's a Tim. Wow. I think the first time I ate at a Tim Hortons was you know at a mall somewhere. But yeah, so I figured there had to be everything's related to hockey up in Canada. I mean, beer, moose hunting, you know, Tim Hortons. <laughs> I didn't know. I didn't know it was out in in Minnesota. That's that's. Uh, oh very, yeah. Very. Oh yeah. As they say in Minnesota. Oh yeah, for sure. Yeah. Don't you know? Don't you know? Hey, well, I mean, you you kind of you kind of messed around with this, and then but you finally got your act straight, right? And you decided when did when did the did you apply for the police because your contract ended, or did you apply for the police because it was time to apply for the police? Well, I actually also got a, a part time job teaching at at a college, at Sheridan College, and. I, I was keeping in shape. I was waiting for that opportunity. And when somebody called me one day and said, Halton police are doing a quick hire. And that was very rare in the nineties, you know, typically that process. And you guys would, would be fully aware of that, that it could take up to a year to, to get on the job with, with all the different steps, the levels, the background, the interviews. And somebody called me and said, did you see the ad in the paper about Halton doing a quick hire? They're doing it all the testing, everything in the span of four days. And that was sort of the catalyst to, to you know, what this is an opportunity that I, I've been waiting for and preparing for because I was staying in shape. Uh, you know, I was trying to do some volunteer work here and there, you know, keep your resume, sh- you know, sharp and in tune. And that's how it started was, was getting that phone call to say, you better check this out. So did you apply anywhere else? I did. I actually tried with the OPP, the Ontario Provincial Police, a couple of years, couple of years earlier, when I was in in university, and the I, I didn't make it. I went right through to the end. And in, in those days, were were the the Bob Ray days. He was a uh, a politician in Ontario, and it was it was hard for. I'll just be honest. It was it was much harder. The the hiring requirements uh, for somebody like myself was was difficult to to get hired. But the silver lining for me was, you know, I went through the entire process. And, you know, sitting in a panel interview and and one-on-one with a a recruiter gave me some insight and some really good experience to prepare for the next time, which which I was successful at. So that pesky criminal record got in the way, huh? It was, yeah. All that beer. (laughs) Shoplifting donuts, I think. (laughs) Oh, there's a stereotype. Now, we were going to stay away from, we were going to stay away from uh, donuts. My God. No, we never stay away. That's what... (laughs) Well, That's our legacy. Yeah, I know. And the worst, the hardest thing in the world to walk by is when they bring those fresh off the rack, take them into a store, Krispy Kremes. Oh, you know, one of the best memes yeah. I saw is a Krispy Kreme truck was on fire out on the interstate, and there's this cop standing next to it with his hand up to his head, going, "Oh my God, it's a tragedy! <laughs> I didn't have any coffee." It's not, yeah. Well, so uh, so you did the rapid hire thing. Um, so. Let's t- let's let the folks know who are listening because we have them. By the way, we found that we had them all over. We got folks from Australia to New Zealand, you know, just everywhere. But every place is a little bit different, right? So we don't in the United States we don't have regional police forces. I mean, we have state, local, county. But Halton was a regional police force. So tell us a little bit about the structure. What was the region it covered? Why was it called Halton? You know, tell us a little bit about Canadian. Law enforcement. Actually, I was thinking of the name for this episode could be the Canadian Copper Capers with cops from Canada. So, <laughs> I like that's really catchy. <laughs> He's got a lot of free time on his hands. Uh, no, I don't. <laughs> anyway, but but tell us about Halton, you know, and uh, the area, you know, and what the size of the department, you know, things like that. Yeah, to break it down, like three levels. There's the the federal police agency, which is the RCMP, Royal Canadian Mounted Police. And then all the different provinces in Ontario, they have their own 
provincial agency. So for example, I, I, I grew up and I'm, I'm from Ontario. So they have the Ontario provincial police. So they are, you know, uh, provincially mandated and they have detachments from, you know, very up North in, in, in Ontario to, you know, down into the Toronto area. Then I had a have, buddy in uh, South Porcupine detachment up in Timmins, oh. Ontario. You want to talk about eight hours north of Toronto? That's north, buddy. Isn't that called the North Pole? That's pretty fucking close. I went up Jeez. there to do a when they uh, the North College Northern College had a keynote. I got to do the keynote. I flew to Toronto, then Toronto to Timmins. That's far. I thought I was the last man on earth. <laughs> they, there's there's an old saying about areas like that. It's ten months of winter and two months of really bad snowmobiling. Yeah, and but you know who's from Timmins? Shania Twain. Shania Twain, baby. Oh my gosh. Oh, oh yeah. yeah. My, that rating just went way up there. It did. And he got to be he got to be on the detachment, the, the, the police officers that escorted her when she carried the torch for the Winter Olympics when they held it um over in uh, Vancouver at Whistler. How about that? Yeah, very there, cool. You know, I'm I had some impressed. connections to Canada. I did my research. Thank you very much. My mom actually lived in Timmins when she was growing up for about eight years as well. So I have some connectivity to And that was a long there. eight years. Eight years felt like fifty. Oh, it probably was. <laughs> No offense to you. No offense to my buddy Mac Pettigrew, uh, who retired as a sergeant with the uh, OPP up there. But uh, anyway, back to our regularly scheduled uh, podcast about Halton Regional Police. Yeah. So then you have like Toronto Police is the biggest sort of city service in Canada. But then you have all these small municipal forces. So um, I grew up in Mississauga, which is Peel Region. So they have Peel Regional Police. And beside Peel Region is Halton Region. And it's to give your listeners sort of some context. Uh, it Halton is Oakville, Milton. It's right on the uh, shores of Lake Ontario, and it's right in between Hamilton and Toronto. And Hamilton's about forty-five minutes from Niagara Falls, New York, where you would cross over into Buffalo. So it was a really interesting region to work. It was a, about a thousand officers. I think it's much bigger now. I've been retired for five years. But uh, a lot of rural areas, and then you know the the, the city Burlington is probably the the biggest city in the region, um, and the population. I know Milton, which is part of Halton. Uh, I'd have to actually check, but for years, up until about three years ago, they were the fat in the top three fastest developing communities in Canada. So you talk about population influx, like Toronto's a, a big city. We have about I'd say two point eight million. But now you're seeing Mississauga and some of these suburban uh, areas. They're really they're really growing, and it's you know not only difficult for structures and roadways, but you know for even police agencies to keep up with the with, with the number of people they have to police. So it was a really fun area for me to start working because we were nestled between the two major cities, being Hamilton and Toronto, and you know that throwaway on the highway, the you know the popular highway out in Toronto is the Queen Elizabeth Way that will take you right from Toronto right to the border of Buffalo, New York, and you'd get all kinds of things happening out, out that way because we were nestled right in between. So in the population, did they include counting moose? Was that included as part of the official population? <laughs> well, it was for the beer drinkers. There were a few horses and sheep known to get uh, out of their barn that night years ago. Oh, let's not. Oh, yeah. Let's not. Oh man, there is a bad story. I don't even want to get into that. Anyway, okay. That actually be what that'll be part of it. Maybe in our small town police blotter. Who knows for this episode? So, uh, but no. The way you mentioned that now, are there the equivalent of counties in Canada? So you've got your provinces. What's the next lower level? Uh, you know, uh, subdivision. Is it a? Is it just a city, or do you guys have the equivalent of counties? 
Uh, that would probably be the equivalent of a town. Okay. So uh, you go small, from the province to a town and there's nothing in between. Like, for example, Murph and I are in Virginia, the Commonwealth of Virginia. So you have Virginia. Then we live in Loudoun County. And then there's towns within the county itself. So you guys don't have any of that separate subdivision uh, between the province and the town. Yeah, they like to call them like we have the provinces, then the big cities, and then either towns or municipality. Well, the reason I was asking is how do you decide then what becomes a regional police? So like, how did Halton decide, you know, how do you determine what the boundaries are for that? Because it's easy here, uh, for example, the county next to us, Fairfax County, it's a county police. They're the equivalent of a regional police. You know, it's very simple. We're, we're the county boundaries, right? But with a region, how do you guys define the region? Yeah, this was before my time because each there's four major sort of subregions within Halton. And in the 1970s, they actually had their own sort of like, you know, miniature sized police services. And one day, I think it was in the 80s, they decided to amalgamate all these four regions into Halton region. So it was really essentially, you know, a, an amalgamation of these four smaller areas into one large area in terms of, you know, mapping and, and obviously with, with policing services in that area. Now, did you guys have resident officers like out in, you know, remote areas that would, that's where they were assigned, they lived and they worked that area or does it, did everybody work out of precincts or substations and report in each day? Yeah, I started in Oakville and at that time in the mid nineties, you had to do your first four years to get up from fourth class constable to first class. And we had a police division and we had a headquarters. So the headquarters obviously was our epicenter, but in each one of those four areas, Georgetown, Milton, Oakville, Burlington, they had their own distinct police station. So I ended up working in Burlington and then all over the place. I, I never really worked up north, actually, but I worked at headquarters, Oakville and Burlington, which were to the most south, like they would butt up right against Lake Ontario. And, um, you know, like you would just drive into report to your division. See, that's funny hearing a Canadian talked about, I didn't work up north. You are north. <laughs> I totally That's walked in. I totally walked into that one. I don't work up north. What do you mean? You're like eight hours from the North Pole. Of course you're north. <laughs> I yeah, I meant north where I was working in, in oh, that context. Okay. But yeah. Th thank you for the clarification. So you went from fourth fourth class to first class, whereas Murph went for, in DEA, you went from no to, to no class. But uh, yeah. I still have no class. No class. None of us do. That's why we're on this podcast. Yeah. So yeah. you go from fourth class. So during that time before you promoted up, what kind of what kind of calls would you handle there? I mean, uh, where there's like public apologies in progress, or you know. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's good. I got. I, I needed a second to recover for that one. It was funny. Um, <laughs> hey, we come armed for this, man. We did our homework on Canada. Oh, You're not man. the first Canadian cop we picked on. I know. I I listened to Pamela Barnum's episode too. So, well, we're uh, afraid of her. We're being yeah, nice she'll to kick her. our ass. I, I yeah. I'm, I'm going to apologize to Pam. Yeah. Pam, please don't kick mm -hmm. my ass. Thank you very mm -hmm. much. Go ahead. Yeah, I can't say I was. I ever jumped out of a car. That was that was crazy. I was so impressed by that. <laughs> well, my first day on the job, we because the way we have it, like before you go to police college, which was three months of training, you would have three weeks with a recruit officer, then three months in London, Ontario at police college. And then you would come back for another three weeks at headquarters. And then you spent three months with your coach officer before you could sort of graduate out on your own on patrol. And I remember my very first shift with my coach officer and he was fantastic. And you just ready to go and get started. 
uh, you know, we dealt with uh, one of the worst things to deal with is a suicide. And I found in the first two hours of my shift, we're in an industrial unit and a guy had, you know, literally blown his head off with a shotgun. And, you know, it was really surreal because I remember standing there and, uh, you know, you have to treat these scenes as crime scenes until you can you can work your way down and determine w- what exactly happened. Is this your first dead body you've ever seen? Aside from a, a funeral, yeah. Like I mean, but yeah, other than a funeral, but this is the first death you've, you've uh, seen. It was. Wow, what an indoctrination, huh? It, it was. And you know, I have to tell you, Murph and Morgan, I, I was waiting. I thought I was getting punked at one point, and then your mind s- starts racing. And I thought, I'm waiting for a director to say cut because it looked like you were on a movie set or something. But then, and this was the, talk about like putting your feet to the fire your first day was, I remember there were other investigators came and, you know, obviously it's a crime scene, major crime came, um, you know, the identification bureau. And it's this, I get it now and I got it after about two or three years, but it, and it's not, it's not disregarding the criminal integrity of these scenes, but you have to have a dark sense of humor when you, when you're dealing with this all the time. And I remember being so almost like speechless because there, you know, you have to, you have to have humor in this line of work because that was one of hundreds of incidents, uh, if not into the thousands of tragedies that, you know, typically we would all see in our career. And if you don't have that, uh, you know, thick skin in terms of making, you have to, you have to talk about it with your, with your, your, well, it's a survival mechanism. And, in, but oh, in yeah. those days too, in my days too, eighties. And I know Murph, we talked about you when you first started, what was that? Ought to, uh, 19 ought to, or something like that. But, <laughs> um, but you know, but there wasn't a whole lot of counseling. I, you know, I, we were never taught how to deliver death notifications. And as, as right. a trooper, you would, you, you would give the worst news in the world to somebody. When you knock on somebody's door at three o'clock in the morning and you're in uniform, it is never good news. No. And, and, and then showing up on scenes and working those things. Uh, the other thing the cops tend to do too is compartmentalize stuff, right? You know, we compartmentalize, don't share. But you'd mentioned something though too, but you also have to have the ability when you go to these scenes, you have to have the ability to compartmentalize, right? Like, yeah, it's a bad scene. It sucks, but that's got to go over here on one side of my brain. My other side of the brain has to be factual. It has to be clinical, you know, I just need to look at the facts because how many suicides have actually just been a cover for a murder? And if you don't take the time to investigate it, you've just allowed somebody to get away with suicide. That's actually one of my cold cases right now that I'm working on. 100, 100%. How long had the body been there? Uh, it had been in there over the weekend. It was... Uh, oh, a, a, so, so the aroma. Oh my gosh, that's not going to smell good. Yeah. And... It was just, you know, it, it was very surreal. And you bring up a really good point, Morgan, because I really learned throughout my career, to, you have to focus on, you know, getting to the root of, of what happened at that scene, not only for the person who's sitting there deceased, but is it a staged crime? You know, there's so many different things you have to do in terms of investigating it. And over time, um, for myself, like you become you become sort of not immune to it, but you have to deal with these scenes professionally. And you do have to sort of put whatever thoughts are in your mind to the side because you have a job to do and you have to do it, you know, dot every I and cross every T because you want to ensure 150% that this is actually what happened, that it wasn't a stage staged to look like a suicide, um, you know, an insurance and all the other motives that are behind the scenes. 
Well, you know, to a degree, you do become immune to it. Uh, if you're staying it for years and years and years, like we all did, you know, because you just see it repeatedly. And then people wonder why we have that dark sense of humor. But that's like you said. And boy, I don't say Morgan's right very often, but he's right. You know, you got to have that dark sense of humor to get through life or you, this shit will drive you crazy. And people think it's disrespectful and it's anything but disrespectful. I mean, the, the sense of humor is not displayed in public, but when you're back in the station or whatever else, there might be a couple of things made because to your point, you know, everybody remembers that first time they roll up on something where it's a dead body or a homicide or a um, bad accident where there, I mean, you talk about blood and gore being all over the place, especially when like, say you got a passenger car get that gets hit by a fully loaded 80,000 pound truck tractor semi-trailer and you're trying to peel body parts out of it. It's like... You got to have it because if not, the number one killer, I don't know what it is in Canada, but in the United States, if we take COVID out of the current situation, but the number one killer of cops is not felony on the job assaults, it's suicide. Yeah. And you know, you don't, it doesn't mean you lose your compassion for people. You still have compassion for them, but some guys just can't deal with it. Well, what's the suicide rate like? You know, what 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 is the suicide situation in Canada with police officers? Do you guys uh, have some of the same challenges? Is it the same? Yeah, you know, I've been out of the job for five years, and they're really, uh, you know, follow a lot of stuff on social media and, and friends and, and family members that are still on the job, and it's this real push in the last four or five years. This destigmatization, you know, of you know, opening up those communication lines because. In this line of work, you know, same with, I'll, I'll even give it to like, you know, that tiered response, like ambulance attendants, they're, they're seeing and dealing with a lot of this stuff too. And, you know, even fire, it's that, it, it's that emergency services response. And it's really important in my opinion to, you know, one of the best coping strategies is just talking about it. And when I got hired, I, I was on a, such a great shift that we would actually debrief uh, all, all of us back, you know, whoever dealt with a, a tragic call and we're, and this is in the mid nineties and we would, we would talk about it because some of the bad coping mechanisms that you see coppers get into is, you know, bottling it up. And you mentioned that compartmentalizing Morgan and, you know, hitting the bottle or, you know, and that's, that's when things, it's not conducive to working through it. Yeah, man, this is taking a dark turn. We got to lighten things up just a little bit here because <laughs> no, but but it's a serious, but it's a serious topic, and, and there's been a lot of people both on our Patreon uh, site and also on the podcast appreciate the fact is that we will actually talk about some of these things because it's not easy to talk about soldiers in the United States. We lose uh, people in the military three to twenty two veterans a day. We lose a lot of cops that way. So for years, like you said, nobody talked about suicide. You know, mm -hmm. it was. It was the the bogeyman, but l let's kind of go back to talking about you because uh, you're working your way up from uh, fourth class to first class. See, that's that the other thing that kills me too. It's these classes. It's like I always thought fourth would be higher. It's like going to grade school. Fourth grade is higher than first grade, right? So, <laughs> well, it's because you're from Kansas. You just don't know any better. Uh, well, we know how to count, though. Obviously, <laughs> four is greater than one, Steve. That's why that little sign goes that way. Not in Kansas. Uh, yeah. But, um, but so, but during this time though, I mean, you're working the streets. What point do you decide, dude, I haven't been to college enough. I need to go back and get my master's. Was that before or after you made Sergeant? That was just before it was about 2000, 2001. I thought I, I really wanted to, to go back to school. And the only way I could do it was, was part-time. And at that time, in Ontario, it was very difficult. Uh, most universities required you to not only show up in person, but to do it to do it full time, and it just wasn't feasible. Steve, who does this sound like? 
Mm-hmm. Pam Barnum again, mm-hmm. having to go to law school and other stuff. What is it with you Canadians? You, you're working full time in public safety, law enforcement, and then you decide, hey, let's pile a master's level course <laughs> on top of this. Well, it's setting a standard for everybody else, aren't you? A standard we can't reach. No the wonder there's a lot of beer in Lonely Moose. Well, no more Lonely Moose in Canada. <laughs> not with that kind of beer floating around. <laughs> hey, you look, I like your antlers there. That's a nice rack. <laughs> <laughs> I'm always happy when the conversation turns back to beer. You can't go wrong. You can't go wrong. No, you can't go wrong. What's in that cup you got on the desk there? I can see that. <laughs> That's water, I promise. Yeah, sure right. Well, beer has water in it, too. We know, pal. Uh, uh, we're yeah. trained criminal investigators. So, You remember when you were working the street, you pulled somebody over for DUI? How many beers you had? Oh, two. Yeah, two. It's just a, Actually, two I kegs. had one guy be truthful with me one time. He was actually very truthful. I pull him over. He is drunk as shit. He can't hit his ass with both hands. <laughs> He's driving a little Ford Courier, you know, the little pickup trucks that had the uh-huh. camper shell on the back. He says, I've had one beer, but it's a really big fucking one. Well, what he had was he had a little eight-gallon pony keg in the back, and he would just pump it up, pour the because he thought if he did it that way he wouldn't get charged with the open container in the vehicle (laughs) well so what'd you do to it did you take him home his ass and towed it but you know what we didn't have an evidence locker big enough to hold an eight gallon pony keg so i had to take a little bit of it and return it back to the distributor Uh, and how did you take a little bit you took the nozzle didn't you no no if you'd seen this guy he had about as many teeth as most people in West Virginia. So, uh, <laughs> oh, that's going to get me in trouble. Yes, yeah, I know. All four of them. My family's going to pay you a visit on that one. <laughs> if you've been accused of lying through your tooth, you might be from West Virginia. <laughs> Sorry, I just saw Jeff Fox over there. Yeah, it's still but, better being from Kansas. Oh, yeah, my gosh. Yeah, I know. Anyway, because he's jealous. He wished he was from Kansas. So back to you, Stephen, our guest of dishonor. So, um, <laughs> so, but you decide, and by the way, you just don't go anywhere. You go to Australia to take your master's course. Okay, so just because it's right down the block. Yeah, it's just right down the corner. <laughs> I was joking that the commute was was hell, but thank, <laughs> thankfully I was able to do it long distance. So it was, uh, I would sort of liaise with uh, my, my supervisor uh, through email and then online. Um, wow. Where yeah. was it? Tell us the name of the university. It was Charles Sturt University in New South Wales. They have a, a bunch of different campuses, but I want to make sure that they were going to be accredited and recognized in, in, in Canada, let alone Ontario, and they were. So I did a, I did my master's part-time over the span of four years. Why couldn't you find a place in Canada to do it? I mean, was it just the unique program, or uh, was it just because you, you really wanted to be Australian? You were tired of being up north. You wanted to be down <laughs> south, eh? Or was it easier? Were the classes easier? Yeah. Well, you know, there was free Fosters uh, thrown in as an Fosters is Australia's joke on the rest of the world for beer. Nobody in Australia drinks Fosters. You're an imposter. That's we just found you out. You're an. You never went to Charles Sturt University. You just pretended to. I really did work at the beer store. (laughs) And you ought to know Fosters is Australia's joke. Nobody they drink Victoria bitters, you know, or something, but. Anyway, so you're in this master's program, but you do it over four years, right? So what? So what's your day look like? I mean, you're already working 10, 12-hour days and then adding school on top of it. Uh, looking back, I, I I think I was probably clinically and legally insane because I was working in a street crime unit at that point, and our hours were all over the place. And my oldest, who's now uh, in, in university herself, was uh, two years old when I started. Oh, so my it was, gosh. It was, I'd, I'd work till... If I was working a week afternoons, get home at one one thirty in the morning, I would get up at four thirty five, put some study time in. If my daughter got up in the middle of the night, you know, you with 
we would take turns getting my daughter up and then I would study throughout the day and then try to sleep. Wasn't the best sleeper and then back at it for, you know, another afternoon shift. So looking back, I really don't know how I did it. Um, but I really wanted to do it. Not just for me. I actually wanted to, you know, sort of be like, show, show my daughter. I have three, three girls now. Um, you know, like, hard work no one's gonna knock on the door and, get, uh, and give you anything you, you gotta, gotta, earn you gotta it, work hard you gotta set work an example hard. that's as i say success is rented and the red is due every day man you just can't sit on your ass and uh, that's the biggest thing we see out in this area in northern virginia you get a lot of people retire out of the military high ranks and they think just work's going to come to them in fact we have a favorite joke why is every admiral and every general after they retire late for work on their first day they're waiting for their driver to show up. <laughs> there That's is the no truth driver. Too. <laughs> I don't know how to one. I had Admiral one Admiral tell me one time. Said, I almost forgot how to drive. I hadn't had a driver in like ten years. But back to you. So you know, I know the same thing. I, I went back to school and got a couple degrees while I was on the job too. And it's just like it's. It, I mean, when you're raising kids, we I was remarried, so we had a blended family. So I mean, it's tough to do it. So you know, kudos to you for doing that. But oh, did, thank you. Uh, well, no, don't. Let's see. Thank you. No, you're supposed to apologize. You're supposed to apologize. So sorry about that. Sorry about doing that. <laughs> sorry about going and getting an advanced degree so I could better make things better for my kids. Yeah. Um, setting that example. Yeah, setting that example. How terrible of me. But being a terrible father like you were and stuff, um, as you were working though, but you started working towards, uh, I mean, you wanted to get, you started getting into intelligence, right? So Tell us about this transition from street crime units uh, to intelligence, and what's the difference between the two? Yeah, the street crime unit, we were always in plain clothes, and we worked street-level drugs. We would do robberies, a lot of property crimes, but that's really where I cut my teeth on developing street-level informants and learning how to interview and getting that training. Because I always say, you know what? It doesn't matter who you are, where you're from. Everybody has a story to tell, and it's about you know, building that trust and rapport and that relationship, whether it's somebody that's sitting in the bucket that just got arrested or they're just about to be released or somebody you're working on the street. And that's where I really just, you know, that information that would come from people and developing informants uh, in the early stages of my career in that unit, I really realized that's, I just was fascinated by, by that type of work. So I really worked hard at trying to get it wasn't necessarily always the quantity versus quality. I'd rather have 10 quality informants than 20 iffy informants. So oh, God, that, who could handle 20 informants? That's like having two wives. I would go nuts. <laughs> <laughs> or more. Oh, <laughs> Holy cow. Well, everybody's got their story. So real quick, everybody's got their story about some favored informant. Mine, it, I want to hear yours too. But you know the thing, what these the reason these things happen is no good deed goes unpunished. If you treat people nice and you treat people right, they come back to you and pay you in spades. So I stopped this guy one time. I won't use his name because I think he's changed his life. But he was like felony suspended. I see him even as a detective. I'm going, look, I can, now I can get some leverage. He starts to run off and I yell at him, I know who you are. Get your ass back here. So <laughs> he comes in hanging his head. Long story short, as we work out a deal, he ends up turning me in information that helped clear some burglary rings, some major stuff. But then I get a call, freaking two o'clock in the morning one time. And I'm thinking, this better be damn good. <laughs> I'm having a fight with my girlfriend. What should I do? <laughs> I mean, it's like, oh my God, now you're a counselor, you know? <laughs> yeah. So, yeah. Steve, let's, let's see, real quick divergent. What's your favorite? You know, what's it, a good, funny informant story? Oh, good, funny informant story. Um, well, I had one guy, he had been in jail for so long. He wasn't 
uh, <clears throat> pardon me, he wasn't really familiar with a lot of the new... Was that an apology? Was pardon me an apology? Steve, was I that... Think... Murph, was that an apology? S- uh, same thing. It qualifies. Qualifies. All right. We already okay. got our apology out of you. Thank <laughs> you. Go ahead. And it just, you know, sometimes you have to have fun. And I had this informed that probably at the three-year mark. And when they initially got out of jail, um, you know, we would go and meet this this informant in the middle of nowhere. That's where they felt comfortable. And I remember it was the middle of summer, about 90 degrees. And I would, I would put on the seat heaters and I think it, (laughs) why just, yeah, sometimes you have to have, you have to have fun. You have to keep it light. He had a really good, he had, he was, he had a really good sense of humor too (laughs) for an informant. And he was always trying to bust my chops. You know, I was always professional. But one day when he wasn't looking, I put the seat heater on and, you know, it was 90 degrees outside. I turned the AC off and we're, we're, we're driving to the location. <laughs> and I was just watching him like, you know, just wiggle in pain and discomfort. And he was sweating. And finally, he, he just turns to me and he says, Steve, it, it, is it me or is it freaking hot in here? Like my ass is burning like a... <laughs> Like I'm sitting on a fire pit and I just, I just started howling. And I'm like, sometimes you have to, cause all we're talking about is, is serious stuff when we, you know, when we get there, but there's nothing wrong with having a, a laugh or a little fun here and there. So that was my, that was sort of my little, little, little payback. Got established dominance right off the bat. Yeah. Yeah, you do. What about you, Murph? You, you had to have some stupid informant out there somewhere. Oh, I've had several. Um, <clears throat> one guy down in North Carolina, I guess. We, his nick, his street name was Third. Big guy, huge. I mean, just massive, but really overweight. And uh, so we went to, we found out he was double dealing on us. You know, he's giving us information, but he's also selling crack on the side. Went to arrest him, and and you know, we're on the way to the station. And he's, oh man, I can turn in so and so. You know, I know you've been after him. I haven't been able to get him, but I know where he is, and he's he's holding right now. So I made the uh, imperial decision, you know, to. Let's go see what happens. But we didn't have adequate coverage. We only had two guys, and we sent him into a project. About three years later, I saw third after he got arrested. <laughs> he went in with my buy money. He was under arrest. He absconded. Now he's got to, you know, he's got to charge. He's got to face the charge for escape. But then I've got to go to explain to my boss and the U.S. Attorney's Office how I let a prisoner escape because he was officially under arrest. Well, you can also unarrest people. I learned that a long time ago. Uh, you can go to jail for that kind of stuff. He was unarrested. No. <laughs> Supreme Court case in Kansas. We had a trooper guy knew that he arrested the guy, took his blood, then unarrested him. So this county, so the state wouldn't have to pay for his medical bills. (laughs) (laughs) Anyway, we digress. So going back to you. So you're working street level informants, you know, and, uh, but again, you're working the street crime, but what defines the difference between like what you're doing with informants? And then now you've got a mission in the intelligence unit. Yeah. In intelligence, you are, your sole objective is Number one is organized crime. And there, there are obviously a lot of facets of organized crime. But when I went into intelligence a few years later, I went in as a supervisor. So I oversaw, you know, things like the, you know, we had a member that was in the provincial biker squad that dealt with outlaw motorcycle gangs. We would deal with terrorism, hate crimes. Um, it, it, you know, this could change too, guys. Like it, you know, uh, flavor of the day, the lone wolf syndrome happened with the the homegrown terror attacks. We had a couple incidents where two members of uh, the Canadian military yeah, were, were those. killed, were killed. And that's, that was when I was in intelligence. And, you know, when things, when tragedies happen like that, especially when ISIS and Al Qaeda were really ramping up at that stage, this is about 2013 ish. And, you know, your, your priorities, especially in intelligence, 
shift dramatically and they did practically overnight. So for a while there, you know, a lot of the organized crime files, and this goes even up to the RCMP were, were put on, you know, the big pause button because terrorism took, took precedence. But uh, in the years I was in there, uh, you know, we, we had the undercover pool, uh, informant. So every, every informant report, debrief report that would come in, you know, we had uh, to protect the integrity of the information. We had databases. So it was a really great job because you, you worked, it was such a diverse portfolio. Um, and it was just a blast. Well, you mentioned too that um, you didn't really get a whole lot of training when you were in the street crime unit working informants, but you finally got some training, you know, on the intel side. What what, what kind of training did you did you get to help you, you know, more better prepared to do your job? Because intelligence is really an art form too. I mean, there's there's more to it than just saying, hey, we got intel. It's about developing informants, as you would say. Also, you also have things like agents. It's about preventing things from happening. And it's about using technical sources and methods, you know, and additional confidential. So what kind of training did you get uh, when you got into the Intel side? Yeah, actually, I I got some initial undercover training when I was just a detective constable. So I wasn't yet promoted. And I went into the undercover pool. And I was fortunate enough to get um, a lot of really, really cool training through the RCMP and back at the police college in Ontario, which is is where you know you start out and get trained as a cadet, uh, things like uh, informant development, agent development, interviewing skills, major crime investigative techniques. So these are some of the things that I was able to add to my sort of investigative portfolio. Um, you know that that sort of gave me the sort of the boost up going into intelligence, and that's once I got into intelligence. I sort of got out of the undercover operator side and became more highly trained as an undercover handler, which is like in the States, I think that's probably the equivalency of like a case agent, like your sole responsibility. Technically, case officer, if you say agent, that is a flunkable offense in uh, CIA training. So see, that's this actually, no, you bring up a very good point because when, when you talk like CIA parlance, you say an agent. An agent is somebody who spies, is committing treason. It's spying against our country. You have case officers or intelligence officers. You know, and Murph, like like with DEA, you guys, you guys are DEA agents. But uh, what, what is the uh, what is the terms you used in DEA for between like informants and UCs? Was that your distinction? Oh, uh, yeah. Back then, originally it was confidential sources or CSs, and then it became CIs, confident, or confidential sources, then confidential informants. You know, it's just the flavor of the month when a new, <laughs> a new uh, leadership comes into headquarters, they change things. It's, it means the same thing, though. Yeah, but Stephen, you bring up a really good point, because if you don't know what words mean, because if the minute you told me agent, my first thought is, uh, you know, you know, it's either uh, maybe I've got a DEA agent or depending on who I'm talking to, have we got a spy in place? You know, have we got somebody committing treason? So tell, tell, tell us our vast listening audience, you know, all 12. Um, Ten of them from Canada because you're very popular. You're big. You're big in Timmins, oh, yeah. by the way. I just want you to know your mom got a cult fan club for you up in Timmins. But what's the difference <laughs> between an informant and an agent? And there's like a whole lot more legal stuff you got to do when you become an agent. Yeah, absolutely. An informant is a street level informant. We always say that you can't direct them. They're more uh, a passive source. And just like Murph was saying, that name has really changed. We call them human sources now, but we call them confidential informants uh, when I was in intelligence. And you can't direct them. You can't tell an informant, go to this location, write down these license plates, or buy this cocaine off so-and-so. 
they are the eyes and ears on the street. So, you know, you would give them specific instructions that whatever you hear and whatever you see, we'll come back and talk. And then we would rate the information. You would have to do your due diligence after you met the informant to, we called it the scale. It was either unknown reliability, believed reliable, or confirmed reliable. So if you were able to, through reports or the police computer system, um, even maybe even something that happened in the media, you could you know, put these tangible, loose factors together and then 100% say, wow, that informant, what they said about that murder or, or, or this coming into the country was confirmed reliable. It gave them that much more legitimacy. But then when you have an agent, typically an agent is, it's, it's going to be in Canada. It's an elevated form of an informant where they essentially graduate and now they are more active and they're typically used in Canada in very high level investigations because not only does it take a long time, the process of just getting a police agent, which is a bad, a bad person, an informant, they are now active and you are able to direct them out on the streets. And there's a lot involved. Like I had a few that like they go off the rails because the process is very stringent. Like they have to go see a psychologist. They have to be interviewed. They have to talk to witness protection. They oh have to God. talk to a lawyer. There's a memo, memo of under. How many of your informants, Murph, would have passed the psychologist psychologist test? Zero. Zero. <laughs> and, and we would never send them to start with. We know they're crazy. <laughs> oh man, but that why why so strict? Did you guys was there a, was there some precedent set to where somebody got burned really bad or something went south on the rails? Or is that kind of the way it's always been up there in Canada? Well, it's just the threshold. Like the case I was involved in, O'Tremens, a mafia case, there's really no other way. I always say nothing's ever impossible, but to try to get, let's just take, for example, to try to get an undercover into certain mafia groups or a biker group, you know, it's always beneficial to have an informant that creates that that window of opportunity, that door that opens with a vouch. But in some cases with these organized criminal groups, you have to rely on the a person who lives that life. They are a mobster. And if you are able to turn them from an informant into an agent and successfully get them through, you're really hanging your hat on a, a lot, not only money, but the legalities of, you know, doing this, everything's videotaped and recorded because, you know, agents, unlike an informant in Canada, a police agent is paid and they will have to testify in court. So everything has to follow a strict regimen of guidelines and policies and procedures, because if one, you know, one slip up in the early stages, it's just like a warrant. If your warrant is deemed uh, is thrown out in court. All the evidence there and after goes for, goes south. We call that so. We call that fruits of the poisonous tree. Yeah, but you you bring up a very good point too because there's a distinction a lot of people don't realize. If I'm if I'm at a party and I see a pound of co or a kilo of cocaine and I and I bring it out and I call the cops and I say, hey, here's a kilo of cocaine. I just found it in this house. That's one thing. If I go to the cops and say, hey, there's a kilo of cocaine in the house, and they go, hey, go get it for us, and I go get it and bring it to them. Now I'm acting as an agent of the government. Now I'm to your point, that agent to your point is acting as though a police officer. So they have the same rules, the same constraints on search and seizure, on admissibility. You know, it's just not, you can't, I remember a case long time ago as a police officer, a rookie in Salina. It was a sexual assault case, kind of in a sense, but a mother uh, with a 14-year-old daughter were having sexual relations with a man, not her husband. Uh, and 
the fort, she was basically pimping her daughter out. And the boy, the young son was so disturbed by the pictures. He said, Hey, this is what we got. They said, Hey, go get us the pictures. And the judge threw out the pictures. Fortunately, they convicted his ass. But that was the, that was the lesson I learned a long time ago. Why you got to be careful about working with these folks. Oh yeah. And you know, when I used to teach informant development to, to young coppers and even experienced ones, I would always say you could be corrupted over a cup of coffee because the type of informants, and you know, everybody does have a story to tell, but I always really work towards, you know, getting informants that were in that world of organized crime. And they are always, you know, the first thing you have to do when you're recruiting an informant is the application process. You have to have a, a co-handler with you. You can never be with an informant, male or female, by yourself as an investigator. Uh, it's liability again. And, you know, you have to determine early on, and this changes throughout the relationship of handler, co-handler and informant, is what is their motivation? Because a lot, a, a lot of these guys immersed in drug trafficking and organized crime, they're encouraged, like bikers, the mob, they're encouraged, get close to a cop and compromise him or compromise her. So then we have that copper in our pocket. And I, I mean, I've, I've seen story. I can tell you a quick story that I learned when I was on the organized crime course in the RCMP headquarters in Ottawa uh, a number of years ago. And I actually use that. I, 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 it's not my story, but I, I always quote. It was a Montreal uh, city police sergeant that worked Intel. And at that time in Montreal, uh, Montreal is a very, very uh, organized crime, Italian mafia city for decades. These two young coppers are on the job. And after they finish their shift, they go out to one of these adult establishments. And they don't realize that the, the major mafia family at the time, the Rizzuto crime family, not only own the strip joint, but all the bouncers are Hell's Angels or Hell's Angels prospects. And so these two young rookies are sitting in this adult club and they're drinking beers. And what are they doing? They're talking shop. They're talking police work. The, the waitress overhears them and goes to the head doorman, who's a, an HA guy, says, take them in the back, treat them like royalty, give them whatever they want. Well, next thing you know, they're put in compromising positions. Everything's for free. There are surreptitious pictures taken of them in these compromising positions. So fast forward about a week later, the one copper is off duty by himself. He comes out of a mall. He's in the parking lot. And a guy literally walks up to him with a manila envelope and says, hey, have a look at these. And he opens them up. And it's him in these compromising positions in the back room of an adult club owned by the mob. And he's first, he says, do you want your wife to see these? He, and the copper's like, no, no. He says, do you want your employers to see these? No, no, no. Okay. Here's a list of license plates. Run these. This is my number. This is the number you're going to. And once you do it once, you'll do it twice. Mm -hmm. You'll you're do done. it three times. They call it the hook. The they get the hook in you. Yep. And so I would always use the example of never accept I always, I always memorize, and if I couldn't remember, I always wrote it down on the inside of an informant's uh, notebook, because in Canada, we refer to them as a number to protect their anonymity. And I would always bring them a coffee, whether we're meeting in a hotel room that we had booked under our undercover gaff uh, IDs, or if it was in the middle of nowhere in a parking lot, which some were comfortable, I would always bring them a coffee, because it was that 
like that rapport building. And they were, I mean, a lot of them were just so impressed. Like here they have hundreds of dollars in their pocket, but I buy them a $2 Tim Hortons. And that's what I said. It had to be Tim Hortons coffee. There you go. Back to Tim's. It was, you can't go wrong. Hey, Murph, earlier you were nodding your head when he was talking about meeting with informants. What was your procedure at DEA? I mean, because sometimes some of these people you're meeting with, I mean, these are HV, you know, T's, you know, they're HMFICs. Right. It, and you know what? That you're exactly right. You had to determine that's the most important thing. What that motivation is, uh, and we, you never, never, never met an informant by yourself. Never. I mean, you weren't even comfortable talking to him on the phone if you didn't have someone else listening in on the call. You know, we used to back before we had cell phones. Uh, this was back in the '80s down in Miami. You know, we all carried pagers, and when you got a phone call at home. You didn't want to use your home phone, so you'd go out to, you know, you knew where pay phones were in your in your local neighborhood, and you'd take your little recording device out there with a little suction cup, and you'd stick it on the pay phone receiver so <laughs> that you could record those. the whole phone call. <laughs> what a pain in the butt. But then that was how you, it was called CYA. You covered your own ass there by documenting everything that he told you. But you always had to have uh, uh, somebody with you when you're meeting them in person. Whatever they told you, you never took it as gospel. You know, if we were having a slow day in the office, we'd go do surveillance on our informants just to see what they were up to. You know, and the purpose being you're trying to maintain their integrity so that if you do put them on the witness stand, you're prepared for the defense because they're going to attack your informants. Oh, you've got a criminal record. You know, you're just doing this because you're trying to get time and off talk from your record. or The government's paying you money or, oh, that was your rival, you know, in the drug business out there. All of the above are true, yes. (laughs) Yeah. So that determining the motivation is one of the most important things you have to do right off the bat. Um, and then, like you said, that was, that was a perfect way to put it, Steve, was uh, do your due diligence continuously. The first informant I worked with, the DEA, uh, and he actually worked for a senior partner, uh, Kenny Peterson, who was – Kenny taught me more about the job than anybody I ever worked with on DEA. Um, this guy was a crop duster pilot out of, out of L.A. We call that Lower Alabama here in, in you know in the United States. And this guy had done his time in prison, had his own plane, had stones as big as they come, was willing to fly to Columbia to the Guajira Peninsula, pick up loads of cocaine, bring them back. He would do airdrops off the coast of Puerto Rico. He'd land on, on uh, roads out in the middle of the Everglades. I mean, this guy, he did have a big set. Um, and so he would call me regularly and I'd have to go, you know, out and record the phone calls. Well, when this was all said and done, he actually went down on one load and was kidnapped by the, you know, they said, Hey, every time you come down here and get a load, we seem to lose it. You know, there's gotta be an explanation here. So he's in, you know, he's in hot water, obviously it took us three months to get him back to the United States. But then he demanded, you know, I want X million dollars for everything I've done for you. Well, if you went back and looked at his record, you know, his payment record, and everything is documented and he signs, you don't give him anything that he doesn't sign for. Uh, he'd been paid way, way over a million dollars. And and a lot of that was maintenance on the aircraft, but, you know, he was also putting some money in his pocket. Well, when he didn't get what he wanted, the next thing you know, Kenny and I were front page on the St. Louis Post-Dispatch for an entire week because <laughs> he was recording our phone calls. He, it wasn't just me recording him. You know, when he's when he's asking for all this money, I mean, one of the techniques they teach you is you blame it on your boss. I mean, I, you know, I want to get you this money, but the boss isn't going to let me go come in and pay you one hundred thousand dollars. That's just that's not even in the ballpark. <laughs> and and so we actually blamed it on the special agent in charge. And, and when that came out in the paper, well, he got pissed at us. You were bad mouthing me in front of these informants. It wasn't personal. This is just how you play the game with these guys. It's SOP. It's so crazy. who did you throw under the bus, Stephen, when things went sideways, huh? Matelski, tell us. 
<laughs> I actually, I tried to stay away from throwing people under the bus. I, you know, we would use that, that technique that uh, Murph just mentioned, you know, make, make up a fictitious boss or just refer to them as the boss. Um, I would never individually, you know, identify anybody and whip them under the bus. Wasn't well, I wasn't meaning exactly ah, like that, there. but yeah, you, you had, you also had a technique, right? So what were the, some of the techniques you used to deflect these guys from, uh, you know, like when Merce said, Hey, they want, I want this, I want that. How did you, how did you deflect them and get them back on task? Yeah. Cause a lot of them are e- extremely high maintenance at Morgan. You mentioned about, you know, an informant call. I, I had an informant call me Christmas Eve to talk to me about relationship problems. And I felt like Dr. Frickin' Phil. Oh, and I'm like, but again, <laughs> the, the hard part is you spend so long, you know, these informants that are that valuable. Like if you brush these people off and hang up or say, piss off, don't bother me. It's they're done. They'll say, forget you, you know? And, and so, you know, it was, it was part of the job, but the deflection part, trying to get them back and to tie it in again, but the corruption, it would have good relationships with these informants, but they would always test you. Like, oh, have you heard about this guy? What, what is this? And I'd say, let's go back to day one. And you have to do it in a way that you're not getting mad. You have to wear a lot of different hats, but you don't want to destroy the report. But you do have to tell them who's in charge. And I would do it in a way that didn't you know, rub them the wrong way. But I'd say, hey, brother, you know what? Information only goes one way. I don't mind talking about who won the, the Blue Jays versus Yankees game last night, or we could talk about the sky's blue all day. I don't care. But when it comes to information, the information is from you to me and not the other way around, because that's what I would teach. They they try to take advantage of younger officers that are just getting in to informant development. And that's where, you know, saying the wrong thing or giving them a little, even iota piece of information and and like Murph said, you know, we would we would uh, we we couldn't legally pat down people. Again, that could be a report killer. But we always made sure there was officer safety issues. Wait a too. minute, hold on. You couldn't legally pat down who? We wouldn't pat down an informant. Okay. Even if you're getting ready to send him in to maybe say buy drugs or something, you didn't pat him down. Oh, that that's a different story. If we're just okay. meeting them to get information, um, yeah, yeah. And you know what? I, I I spent a lot of time. You have to get that that trust and respect there with these informants. I would just say flat out, are you, are you caring? Do you have anything on you? Um, and you know, we, we would, we would do it that way, but we would search if we were meeting an informant right. in the middle of That's nowhere. Different. In you got to search them to make sure they don't have anything on there. So nobody can say, Hey, he went in with a eight ball of Coke, you know, uh, he right. didn't buy it. Right. right. But, but, but that's got to keep you on heightened awareness too, because when you can't pat down somebody and I get Canada, that's your legalities. But you're still sitting there. I mean, the whole time I'm thinking, I'm trying to listen to them, but the other thing I'm doing is I'm watching their hands. What, what mm-hmm. are you doing? Yeah, and that's the benefit of meeting these people in pairs. Somebody else can watch while you talk. We right. would always have somebody right, you know, sitting right beside them. Um, I actually preferred... With ho- a gun to their head? Like, if you move? I'm- <laughs> oh, <laughs> no, no, the Canadians are too nice. That was the Italian way. <laughs> <laughs> I, I preferred hotel rooms because it was more of, of an environment. You know, we would sometimes have a surveillance team uh, on the informant for a few hours before they met us. So, you know, we could see if they had any nefarious activities. And uh, the flip side to that is you want to make sure that they're clear, that, that they're black in a sense, that they're not being followed. Bad guys aren't aren't following them. But mm-hmm. it's it was like undercover work. We had the choice of, of wearing our we had a smaller service revolver and in intelligence. Um 
but I didn't, I never felt comfortable doing undercover work with a gun. Uh, I'd, I'd, I would rather let my, you know, communication skills do that. Cause if you get, if you have a gun on, you're either, it, it's easier to get pegged as, as a cop. That, that was my sort of So mentality. did you hold your finger out and go pew pew when you needed to? <laughs> I have an automatic pew, pew, Big Bang pew, 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 pew. It's like a naked naked gun with Leslie Nielsen using the. Uh, well, that's like the old joke from World War II. You know, they were running out of ammo, so they told the you know the the uh, German soldier said just just go out there and say bangity bangity bang, and you know soldiers will fall. And he did that, and then one soldier wouldn't fall, and as he got closer, he heard the other soldier going tankity tankity tank. <laughs> <laughs> very long, very long joke, shortened for your benefit and the and the listening oh. public, but. Hey, but you go through all of this, but the other thing I want you to cover too is the process of developing like informants because uh, not every uh, informant turns into an agent, but but you have to start developing some informants. So let's talk about pitching these people because you would do like what I would do and I'm sure Murph, you did the same thing. What's, what's a good place to go to and find a lot of people, a captive audience to pitch them? Jail. Well, yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, and you've always got people that are, I'll tell you everything I know, but can you get knocked time yeah, off right. of my they find, they find two things, jobs and Jesus. You know, hell, I've got a job. I found Jesus. You know, can I get out now? No, let's talk. So wh- what was your what was your MO, Stephen, your modus operandi as you went to develop informants? Where would you go? What would you do? I started early when I was in uniform, and I tell young officers, you're like when they talk about frontline, you know, the, it's not intel. It's not the detectives. The front line are the men and women that are out there working nights, wearing wearing the blue, stopping the cars, not knowing who they're stopping. And it's you're the first point of contact. And you know you have that unique opportunity while keeping all the officer safety stuff in mind. But you have that opportunity to not only talk to that person. It's like say if it's like an expired sticker on the plate, and maybe they were going the radar device caught them going say 10 or 15 over and you have that flexibility built in to use your communication skills and maybe knock down a ticket or maybe hey i'm going to give you 24 hours discretion it's called discretion right, you can use your that's discretion. exactly right discretion officer discretion and you know i did that probably in my fourth year uh gave a guy an opportunity he wasn't even on the radar didn't have a record and had no insurance slip, said he had it at home. You do have 24 hours, but it could have been, a, I can't remember what it was, like a four or $500 ticket. I said, I'll tell you what, you know, uh, come in, t- I'm back in tomorrow night, come in tomorrow night. If I'm not there, you know, have a copy or have the, the front desk personnel make a copy to my attention. So fast forward, like eight, nine years later, I'm a detective working in a criminal investigation division and I get a cold call and it was from this, guy and I, I kind of gave them a little bit of the, the spiel on the side too you know I call it the plant the seed you're not going to get an informant sometimes on the spot or overnight and this guy nine years later had I would say his career choices uh went a little uh nefarious and was hanging out with some really bad people and he called me and said I don't know if you remember me but you're the only cop I feel like I could talk to and I have information about a murder you know do you want to, would you be willing to hear me out? And that's. And of course you said, no, dude, I've got, I've got a hockey yeah. to go to. I got to buy a coffee at Tim Hortons. <laughs> Come back next week. Right. I got to stock the shelves at the beer store still. I got to, I got to, uh, exactly I got to go right. back. We're out of, we're out of, of fosters. <laughs> well, look, 
admit it on the out the outside you're calm and cool you're going sure i'd like to talk to you on the inside you go fucking hey oh yeah i want to solve a murder get your ass in here it was if those are the things i i call them like the adrenaline rush you know like doing that type of work and you know i've listened to a a lot of your other guests like you know it's that type of work it's hard to replicate that that adrenaline rush we're all kind of we're all kind of type a investigators and um, it's really hard to to find something equal to that. Yeah, my wife says I'm type A, but I don't. <laughs> You're what? She thinks I'm type A. What are you, Stephen? I'd say I'm a type A personality. Got you to say A. Thank you very uh, much. <laughs> oh, jeez. I told you I, I would go. get you on the podcast to say A, and you didn't believe me. I was waiting for the alphabet or something to come up. No, <laughs> patience, grasshopper, patience. Kudos. That's that's a golf clap. That's a golf clap. Oh, don't don't encourage oh, him. Man. Oh, no. It's going to get worse. Oh, God, this is going to be so much fun. I should have told people up. We had this bet on the pre-call that I could get him to say A on the podcast. And he's like, he was really aware of it. And then I got you to say A. I'm not, so, apo- uh, I am not apologizing, though. I'm not apologetic. Well, you said pardon me earlier. That's not an apology, is it? Yes, it is. We decided that, didn't we, Murph? It's an apology. Yeah, it qualifies on yeah, our show. It qualifies. Yeah. Anyway. Sorry. Well, let, let's talk about this. What what was the resolution of that case with the informant, with the uh, uh, information on the murder? Oh, it's one of the things that actually still irks me because he, without you know giving too much information about who he is, obviously, but he was very connected to uh, bikers, to the mob, and he actually was uh, with another agency that I brought on board where the homicide occurred. We were putting him through the agent development process and basically driving him all over the province of Ontario to, to be interviewed, to meet uh, a team of psychologists. And, you know, the, the hard part is this agent, the police agent process, if you get a quality agent that makes it through all that, those steps, I say more power to you. And that's kudos on a job well done because to try to, I would say, I don't have the stats, but the guy we had, he went completely off the rails about three quarters of the way through the process because even each stage of the way is difficult. And even when the witness protection people say, uh, if you have a mom, if you have a dad, if you have a sister, brother, you're not going to see them again. You know, once you're done in this project, being a police agent, we will, the, the Canadian government will give you a brand new identity and you will be relocated to an undetermined area in Canada and you cannot, your, your old life as you knew it ceases to exist. And that includes family. And a lot of these, most of them are guys that are, are police agents, uh, but most of them can't handle that alone. Like that's, yeah, man, that's, a, that's crazy, well, right? Trying to argue to nowhere. Does that include Newfoundland? <laughs> <laughs> you oh, have to yeah. understand the inside Canada jokes. Yes. <laughs> love the, love the newfies up there. You know, and the, it was the same way here in the States when, you know, if, if they go into WITSEC, then you got the U.S. Marshals involved. And and those guys, like, love them, you know, work great with them. But the guys that did WITSEC, when they come in and lay down the law, they, it's like they did everything they did to convince the people not to yeah. go into the witness protection program. Trying to talk them out of it instead of into it. Yeah. And, you know, we, we would give people money to, to relocate and to a T, to every single one of them, 100%. Ended up going back where they started. One guy, you know, somebody knocked on his back door, and when he opened it, they blew him with a shotgun. It was in Clarksville, Tennessee. I was going to say, I don't know what the numbers are, but you really do see a lot of them. They just can't help themselves. And I, I try to put myself in their shoes to think, okay, 
if, if you know, the government's going to send me across the United States or across Canada, you're now living in this community you've never seen. You're, you know, now you're John Jones and you got to get a job flipping burgers down the road and you can't even, you know, communicate or see your family in any form, not an email, not a birthday card. That That's tough. And that's, that's where in this, in that process where a lot of them go off the rails even before, you know, the last stage is the memo of understanding and getting an opportunity to speak with a lawyer, uh, you know, before they, they sign the agreement to be a police agent. So it, it's, it's not easy to get them. Well, and the marshals will tell you too, no, nobody who has followed the rules of the witness protection program, witness, you know, witness protection, nobody who has followed the rules has, has as far as I know, still to today has had bad things come to them as long as you follow the rules. The ones that get in trouble are the ones who break contact, who have to make that phone call, who, you know, it's Maslow's hierarchy of needs. You want that contact, you know, with humans or, you know, family. And that's what, and I think that's the hard part. I think if you're a solo person, did you guys, did you watch Breaking Bad, Stephen? I did. I loved it. Well, so you remember at the end, right? So Saul Alinsky, so I'm not Saul Alinsky, God, Saul Alinsky, rules for radicals. Better call Saul, right? Jimmy um, <laughs> McGuire, or what was his name? Jimmy, um, but he ended up becoming better call Saul, but that was his thing, right? He needed, he needed to get out of town. So he had a guy, you know, uh, he paid money to get out of, same thing that happened um, with uh, Walter White, right? You pay money to get out of there. But the problem is, unless you follow the rules and you stick to them, you end up being compromised. But you started developing a lot of informants, a lot of these. These things started leading you into the path of organized crime. And that's kind of where I want to start steering us to is because you started developing a good quality and quantity, I should say. And in fact, you were telling me one time, one of your, um, you called them coach officers. We, we call them FTOs, field training officers. What are they called? Coach officers? A coach officer. Yeah. You said, what, what was the st- statement you made about how you're going to be remembered? You are, my coach officer told me very early on, probably the, f- uh, probably that first shift he said, you will be the way your career will progress is the quality of your written reports. Because, you know, we weren't a super huge service, but it was the amount of time. It was always the, uh, I always wanted to go above and beyond, you know, like to, you know, uh, sort of outside the box and it, it, turn over every stone you could. And it was how you articulated yourself in written form because a lot of the, back then when I started, you would rarely, you know, see any of these investigators face to face, but copies of your paperwork would always land on their desk. And that's kind of how I, uh, it was my philosophy is, is, you know, spend the extra time. A lot of different types of police calls when I started in uniform, you could clear, there were different codes, but you could clear them no report because it might not have warranted a report. But my philosophy was, why not spend 20 minutes, quickly write up a report in your car because you're documenting it. And it's, you know, and then when you came across pulling people over and if they were on, you know, we call them op three is a level on CPIC, which is the police computer system in Canada. If somebody was flagged as a member of an outlaw biker gang or organized crime, those things on op two and op three would come up. And those, that was a great opportunity to not only have face-to-face with somebody and, you know, plant some seeds in terms of, you know, maybe give them a, a break on a ticket or knock a speeding ticket down, but then to document all that information in a report and send it to intelligence because they're going to want to know that's a pretty, this, this so-and-so from Hell's Angels or the Italian Mafia was, was in this area on this date. And I happen to have contact with them. Those are 
those are the those are the things you really want to document. I just had a contact with Vicky ba- Vinny Bag of Donuts, you know, but but <laughs> uh, Joy the Chin, but no, but you bring up. An interesting point, though, too, and that was the one thing, too. It's like we used to have what we called field interview cards, FI cards or field contact cards, you know, um, just some document, some contact. Because you know how many cases, even when I was a detective, we'd be working homicides. You'd go back. One of the first things I would look at before I even got into the major record system, I'd go back and I'd look at the FI cards. Who did we have contact and where? And more importantly, why? What was the nature of the contact? And then who were they with? That, that simple, we, I can't tell you how many cases we solved, both very serious cases and, you know, run-of-the-mill cases were solved because some patrol officer out there went the extra step and said, hey, rather than just get back into my car and be lazy and go chase my, you know, cup of coffee and, you know, and a donut, yes, we're being stereotypical. Of course, we had no Tim Hortons in Kansas at the time. But, uh, but you know, but just fill out that FI card. So many cases get solved by that smallest piece of evidence. Right. Well, then you track who's on the street, especially if you're on the night shifts and you're having a rash of burglaries and you go back in and check your FI cards, you can see who's been out there. I got an FI card on you, Murph. Got got several of them. You've been wandering the neighborhoods. You know, I'm moving to Florida. You know, I'm moving to Florida. Uh, maybe I'm running. I'm trying to stay a step ahead of the law. You never know. <laughs> you never know. So, but but Stephen, this informant development and, and these things, uh, you went out and you started getting a lot of people that some of your informants now were embedded into organized crime and to other things, right? So tell us about how long of a process that was that got you to the point, because you started sending information to the RCMP on a regular basis, uh, which resulted in having these deconfliction meetings. So let's talk about over what period of time it took you to build up kind of that stable of informants and people. And when you started sending reports to the uh, RCMP. Yeah, I have to say the the funny one of the funniest stories the the year before I got transferred to intelligence was I was stationed in the Professional Standards Bureau as a sergeant and we investigated complaints against police officers and uh, when I went into intelligence uh, a year after that people were really paranoid at first because they thought I was You came from IA what we used to call IA internal IA. affairs. He's a plant. He's here to watch us. <laughs> or what, what do you call it, Murph? What, what's it called at DEA? OPR, Office of Professional Responsibility. OPR, you're an OPR, OPR. plan. OPR. People thought I was working the longest undercover sting. And I finally had to say, <laughs> no, man, I actually got transferred here. Like, you're just being paranoid. <laughs> uh, <laughs> hey, I got to tell you a quick story. So I transferred to headquarters. You know, if you take the management pass, you got to do your headquarters time. So I come up and I'm in special operations. And uh, so we all end up at a bar one night after work. And I had stopped drinking already. I don't drink alcohol at all now. I, I drank so much when I was younger. I'm, I'm, I'm caught up for like two more lifetimes. And so you go into these bars and, and you're meeting all these cops, you know, agents from all around the country. And, and I'm always ordering ginger ale. I'm like, hey, Murph, let me get you a beer. No, you know, I don't drink uh, ginger ale. Well, then they thought I was a freaking snitch. You know, I've never <laughs> met any of these guys before. It took it took quite a long time to earn their trust, you know. Murph's drinking ginger <laughs> ale. Watch, check him for a wire, you know. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Are you Murph? Exactly. <laughs> Say again. Test, test. Hello, anybody listening in there in OPR? <laughs> hey, could you speak up into my pocket here a little louder, please? That was oh, you. I saw you pull that trick before. Yeah, your pants pocket. Well, hey, can you speak into the microphone down here? Yeah. <laughs> There's a joke, but I'm not going to tell it on here. <laughs> oh, my. Yeah. Anyway, we, I had that case, too. Anyway, let's get back to you, Stephen. We, we digress too much on this. So. Uh, I'm, I'm enjoying it. <laughs> well, you were, you oh, were, good, you good. were in uh, the Professional Standards Bureau. People thought you were a snitch because you transferred out of there into – by the way, that's a bad word. I get – I wish – 
I know we say it sometimes too, but I really think it gives such a negative connotation. Nobody wants to work with the police because they're called snitches as opposed to yeah. citizens doing their duty. We got to come up with a fancy name. <laughs> oh, Steve, come on. Hey, look. Let one do you one time and then see what to call him. <laughs> well, that's Snitch what we say internally, right? But we, to get people, you have to be kinder and gentler, like they do in Canada. We call them informants. They're nice people. Cooper- cooperating individuals. Cooperating individuals. Yeah. I agree with you, Morgan. That term I never use because it's so, so just the stigma attached to it. Like if you called somebody a snitch, it's just, you might as well like slap them in the face. It's just degrading source of information. Yeah. Like a, you're, you're a source. I would never call anybody a snitch, but I have to throw, you know, when I worked in professional standards, I had some, uh, a couple. Support. You had some snitches, didn't you? I had. And here, here's the, <laughs> the ironic part. And I have to, I have to say kudos. The people that understood that line of work there, you know, I always respected the, the rank, but there, there was a couple higher ups that said, you have to get rid of all your informants. You're going into professional standards. And one of the, one of the inspectors in there at the time completely disagreed and said, you know, Steve can maintain his informants. These are informants that you can't just toss off to somebody else and, and have them handle. And I, I had worked hard and, and diligently over the years to, you know, have that stable. So it's so ironic here I was working in a suit um, and if I was doing my job in there, but if I had an informant that call, my boss would say, you know, just bring a change of clothes and go off and, and, you know, do your thing. So I have to say, you know, people that get it in that line of work, you know, it, it comes in handy. So I was really appreciative because a year later I didn't see it coming, but I got transferred to intelligence. So just to go back, like how did unloaded downloaded all those informants i would have started from ground zero which you know would have been fine but i went in there you know having those informants still under my under my belt under uh you know under we call them they're carded so once they're carded they're they're given that number so i felt like i was hitting the ground running uh to a certain like degree like c-a-r-d-e-d carded carded yeah yeah you know you bring up an interesting point too um but it also it's good that because you could handle that informant no matter what happened. But there are times uh, in the intelligence community, like for example, the CIA can't work in the United States, and so when you have like say a Russian asset, you have a Russian agent that ends up being transferred, which they do a lot of times with the embassy and comes here. You actually have to pass that off from the CIA to the FBI, and so you have to have that transfer that handoff, which is also awkward. Steve, did you guys have to do that? I mean, Murph, I got to be careful because we have two Stevens on the podcast. So Murph, 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 Murph. It's a great name. Yeah, it's, it's a great name. <laughs> yeah, it's a great name. I agree. So were you guys able to handle your informants, Murph, all the time? Or did were there situations where you had to pass them off? Well, officially, the informant belongs to the agency. But we had so many people that thought the informants belonged to them. They didn't want to share the information. You know, I mean, a, a, an informant, and not to make this sound derogatory, but an informant is an investigative tool. That's that's one of the tools in your toolbox. Source box. of information. Right. So if he can if he can help, you know, Stephen on his case up in Canada, if he can help your, you on your case out in Kansas, or if he can help me when I'm in Miami, he's a source of the agency. Now we had a, a lot of guys uh, would really get close with some of their informants because they were they were very good informants. They were very good. They were very productive putting a lot of people in jail, putting a lot of dope on the table, seizing a lot of assets, which there's a motivator because they can actually file a claim to get a percentage of the assets that are forfeited to the government based on their cooperation, you know, and participation in the investigation. But then you get guys that get transferred 
and they want to go to, you know, say you go from Miami to a smaller office somewhere, but you want to get something big going. So <laughs> they would secure funds and, and, you know, have their informant come up and start meetings in their new post where they really don't know anybody, but now they're coming in and introducing, hey, I've got, I can transport anything anywhere, anytime for the right amount of money. I have access to boats, you know, planes, couriers, whatever you might need. Um, and, and in fact, Kevin, my partner down there, the one that got shot, we were working undercover with an informant and we set up undercover business where we were offer presenta- uh, transportation because we had informants who had access to planes and boats. When you're in South Florida, that works great because it was a transportation yeah, case. Yeah, but when know. you're in uh, Nebraska, it doesn't work so well, right? <laughs> well, it's it, you'd be amazed. I mean, the, these guys were bringing these high-level informants into these small offices, and they were started making some major, major no cases. Well, I mean, I knew that we had a HIDA team out there, too. We had a DEA task force. and But, you know, you'd be surprised, too, where dope runs. In Kansas, you don't think like there's a lot in Kansas, but— they have these old army airfields. The DEA actually used to have sensors out on airfields. And so when planes land, they would know it. And uh, we got involved in an operation one night where a DEA is following a plane out of the Oklahoma City office. They got a Black Hawk and a King Air. And this plane lands. It's loaded with about 1,000 pounds, I think, of weed uh, over in Gray County, Kansas. Uh, but US-83 and US-54, part of Operation Pipeline out of Epic, you know, just, I mean, you'd be surprised where it is. So, Stephen... What was the, so uh, as we're working this back into uh, you, this is about you. Um, believe it or not, this podcast <laughs> is about one of the Steves on this podcast. There you go. <laughs> Cheers. Yeah. Um, what, Have a beer. What, was, what was one of the biggest shocks you had from an intelligence standpoint that once you started getting into it, you go, I didn't know this was going on in, you know, my area. Was, was there a, was there any kind of shock that you ran into that says, I didn't know this shit was going on or to the extent. Yeah, just really quickly too to to build on on what Murph was saying. Like I we would pass off informants quite frequently if the information better suited or was more tailored to another agency. So it was you know, it wasn't a, a hoarding mentality at all. Like we would we would do that quite frequently. But uh when I came in, there there was an interesting um in in Montreal Vito Rizzuto was the mafia boss in Montreal. He was probably the most powerful boss in Canada for a number of years. And when he went to jail, he was actually extradited to New York when the boss of the banana crime family, Joseph Messino, uh, became an informant uh, or flipped to become a cooperating witness when one of the RICO charges carried the death penalty in New York State. And what had happened was Vito Rizzuto, as the Montreal boss in the early 80s, was brought into New York to be involved in the three captains' murders. So while Vito Rizzuto, when he got extradited after uh, the boss of the Bonanno family flipped, Vito Rizzuto was extradited to Colorado. And his father, his brother-in-law, his son, they were all murdered uh, as soon as he was was put in prison. And there were a couple, again, there was no tangible evidence, but there was- there was, was that, where did all those murders happen at? In your area? This is in Montreal, Quebec, about five hours away. Okay. But when I came into intelligence, there was a a person of interest who, again, there was no tangible evidence, uh, reasonable grounds uh, that he was involved in that murder. But there was a mobster in the area where I worked who was arrested up in the area of Montreal. It's a crazy story. Uh, Two days after, after the murder... Um, he was on the run and he had, he, he had all this cash in his pocket, but he was shoplifting uh, a balclava, uh, a, a 
tool belt for to hold shotgun rounds and a plastic tube fitting that a firearm specialist said was probably going to be used for a silencer. So he's up there two days after Vito Rizzuto's dad gets clipped with a bullet uh, from a sniper's rifle and while he's sitting in his kitchen. So that was kind of my foray into intelligence is that um, all the intelligence investigators across Ontario said, as soon as this mobster in your area, referring to where I was working, gets out, he's got this massive target on his back. So at that time in Ontario and Quebec, the uh, even up till a year ago, the there's been a lot of bloodshed in, in the world of traditional Italian-based organized crime. And it really, the, I always call it the cause and effect, the ripple effect, the epicenter of that was really Joseph Messino, the boss of the Bananos, when he he wanted to save his own life because uh, the, the, you know he was going to be put on uh, death row in, in New York State. So he flipped and said, you know, I know who was involved in the, the triple kid. It was in the movie Donnie Brasco where it was portrayed uh, when Joe Pistone was undercover and, and the inner faction in the Bonanno family, they they hired two shooters from the Montreal mob to to take part in the triple murder. And Vito Rizzuto was was one of those mafiosi. Well, Murph's on the hook. You got us lined up with Joe Pistone. You've been in contact with him, right? Yeah, Joe's uh, become a, a very good friend over the past several years. Uh, met him supporting the Southern California Gang Front Conference with Mel uh, Sosa and some guys out there. And um, what a personable guy. And, you know, cops, what do, we, what do cops around the world like to do? We like to drink beer and tell war stories, right? So I don't drink beer, so I tell a lot of war stories. You want to hear some stories? Talk to Joe. Holy cow, man. He makes your skin crawl some of the stuff he was going well, through. And a shameless plug for our Patreon. So we have coming up our live stream, you know, towards the end of the month. We will most likely be reviewing The Departed, starring Leo DiCaprio. But obviously you can see a lot of mob influence in that, right? So... That's that'll be that'll be a fun one. And look, and that's one of the reasons, Stephen, it's glad to have you on because we have a lot of people have expressed interest to us is that, hey, man, they're really interested in the organized crime stuff. And I mean, did you ever imagine starting as a fourth class constable working your way up to a first class and then a sergeant? Did you ever have any idea at that time that you were going to get involved in with organized crime to this extent? Not the extent that I ended up working, uh, especially with that last file that I worked on. I, I didn't see that in a million years, to be quite frank, no. Wow. And because, but I know that you've been a kind of an organized crime buff. And look, I'm serious. I mean, you've got a good, I mean, you've got such a tremendous recall of the families and the facts. So let's start working our way into this case that you're going to get involved with. So a lot of this started, like I said, you started sharing information with RCMP uh, between, like, I think you said 2012 and 2014. Because you had somebody placed in in one of the uh, the Violi the brothers in one of their gangs. Let's talk about the Violis and their relevance to this story and how that all came about. Yeah, just a little back history. Uh, their father, Paolo Violi, in the 1970s was the underboss of the Montreal mob. So the Montreal has long historically been considered to be the sixth family from New York because they're directly connected to the Bonanno crime family. And... Uh, ironically, Paolo Violi, while he was the underboss in Montreal, this is in the late 70s, he allowed a undercover, Bob Menard, to rent a room above his gelato shop for six years. And this is where Paolo Violi... Uh, where was this at? This was in, in downtown Montreal, Quebec. So just to give some context, 
he he was uh, Bob Menard was able to hook up recording devices and years and years of of mob information, not just Montreal, but the inner workings of New York City and the Bonanno crime family and the commission. And when this all came to public light, uh, there was a huge commission in Quebec and the tapes were played. Even though Paulo Violi didn't testify, the stigma of letting in an undercover and exposing the world of La Cosa Nostra was a death sentence. And when he got out of jail after a year of doing contempt, him and his two brothers were killed. Paulo's two sons, Joey and Dominic, with their mother after their father was murdered, moved to Hamilton, Ontario um, years later. So to give it some context, in Hamilton, uh, which is in between Toronto and Buffalo, New York, in the mid-90s, they had three separate Italian mafia crime families. And the Violi Lapinos were one of those families because Paulo, when his two sons moved to Hamilton, they grew up in that lifestyle. They grew up in the mob. They, with their two uncles, were essentially that one of those crime families. And that's, that's like, there's so much history. When you look at Canadian organized crime, Hamilton, Ontario, for decades has been linked to Buffalo, New York, the mob in Buffalo. And the uh, Montreal Mafia, for decades, has been linked to New York City. And all four of those areas are also interconnected. So when I came into intelligence, you know, like you really saw, and, and it was really evident that those four geographic areas, two in Canada and two in the States, there was really no border. And a quick shot, that's the way we police too. Like, you know, it's so amazing dealing even in my career and now too, the brotherhood and sisterhood and policing, there's no borders, man. It's like, we we get the job. I've had some of the best uh, relationships in policing and outside of policing with American counterparts. And it's kind of the same in the mafia. They, they don't look at it as if, as, oh, you're the Canadian mob, we're the American mob. They're the mob. And obviously the American mob is more notorious, but this whole omerta, they don't want to be, they don't want to be a John Gotti. John Gotti wanted to be on the front of Time magazine. He did everything your atypical mobster, like, like that omerta is a is a oath of silence. You don't want to be on the newspapers, man. Like that, so that totally was sort of the the downturn for the American mafia. But um Hamilton's been a long hub, even back to the bootlegging days bringing liquor over to the United States from Hamilton because we're that close uh, to the border. So those three... No, I was going to say, is it true Joey had a brother named Rav? Ravioli? <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> Sorry. Oh, <laughs> I've been waiting to say... <laughs> I can't. I can't. Conf- I think I will throw up on that one. <laughs> I can't confirm or deny that one. Yeah, I know. No, Senator, I don't recall. Uh, now it's your turn to apologize. That was a shitty no, joke. No, that was that was so good. Oh, I'm sorry. Besides that, you guys needed a break. We needed to break things up. So, so, but let's talk about the violis because, like you say, you know, a lot of people start getting whacked. I mean, I I used to think until we really started listening to you and I read some stuff, you know, researching this. It's like. I used to think it was a lot more peaceful and quiet, and then I didn't realize. Mm-hmm. It's like a lot of people didn't realize Kansas City, Missouri, was an organized crime hub. You know, you just—I grew up in that area. It's like you don't think that, but it's you know. So it's it's just spelled my notion of nice Canadians. I'm I'm sorry, but I'm going to have to kill you. Put four bullets in your head, <laughs> eh? Well, most people don't know that Kansas City has is there's a Kansas City in Missouri. Well, there's Kansas City, Kansas, Kansas City, Kansas, Kansas City, Missouri. Yeah, a lot of people right. say, and then when you say you're from Kansas, they go, "Oh, you're from Kansas City." No. I'm from Kansas, you know, but 
No. When you say you're from Kansas, everybody says, do you click your heels together and go somewhere there, Dorothy? I dated her in college. She was from Colby, Kansas, believe it or not. Um, you still got your little red shoes there? Yes, you? I do. And when I click them three times, you turn into an even bigger asshole than last time. Oh, that's, oh, <laughs> that let's go for, the, go, let's go for broke. There we go again. Well, back to you, Stephen, our guest of dishonor. Um, so, but, so you started getting all this information. What was, when was the first time, uh, like you said, you had somebody on one of the brothers crews, right? So you had an informant inside one of the crews. An informant that was definitely from that area in that life. And you mentioned 2012, 2014. That's when, you know, my philosophy has always been, yeah, you, you never want to reveal the identity of an informant because that's their, their health and safety on the line. But my philosophy as an investigator was, you know, information is only best utilized as it is shared and disseminated with obviously the, the right people. And uh, so that's when I started, I had been doing it for a while, but it was, it was, I, I didn't know it at the time, but this is when this massive project was initially underway. And this is when I was sharing this information of organized crime on informant information, it, it was sending alarm bells off with the RCMP and it led to a series of these deconfliction meetings of, you know, t talking about, talking about the information and what's happening. Before we go too far into that, let, let's talk about, about how really dangerous it was. Cause I'm looking at my notes here and, uh, he, Paul was the underboss, you know, of, of the Montreal mafia, but Hamilton had a major role in establishing that because Bonanno, when the family ended up right being named after, uh, he set up Carmen Galante, right? Yeah. One of those, yeah. And sorry. Sorry, Morgan. See, I got you to say sorry. Oh, See, now the oh, A geez. and the sorry. Steve, it. we're going for the trifecta. Uh, you don't have to be nice yeah, to him, You Steve. don't have to be nice, no. No, what I was saying is really what I want to get into is, you know, we think about some of the gangland shootings like Al Capone and stuff and some of the mob hits here, but you guys actually had some pretty nasty mob hits too. People still with cigars in their mouth, you know, being just shot up in cars. Was that was that uh, part of the Galante um, crew or associated with that? Yeah, Johnny Pops Papalia was one of the most infamous mafia bosses in Canada, and he he was whacked in 1997 on the streets of Hamilton. But in the 1950s, Joe Bonanno, who you know one of the, the major families in New York City, was named after him. He he started that family. He looked at Canada like this untapped territory, this valuable property. Montreal has this huge waterfront where cargo ships can come in. If you own and, and corrupt the people that are working those waterfronts, man, anything comes in that in Montreal, drugs, contraband, everything. So that's what the Montreal mob owned for years. But Bonanno in New York sent Carmine Galante, who was an up and comer in New York's Bonanno family, to investigate Montreal and to see the viability and feasibility of extending New York's influence into Canada. And Johnny Pops Papalia, was also sent up from Hamilton, just outside Toronto, to work with Carmine Galante, an American mobster, to help establish Montreal. Because historically, Montreal's always been referred to as the six family. You got the five families in New York City that formulate the Mafia Commission, but the Bananos are a major extension into Montreal. And all you have to, Carmine Galante is one of the most infamous hits. It was in New York. Uh, when he was boss of the Bonanno family, he was that infamous photo of him getting clipped sitting on an outdoor patio at an Italian restaurant with the cigar still clenched between his teeth. Um, and, you know, Johnny Pops Papalia, again, it's it's the in, in by the gun, out by the gun 
uh, one of the other major rival families in Hamilton, there was three of them in the mid nineties took Johnny pops Papalia out. And Johnny was a made man in the Magadino Buffalo crime family. Uh, so, you know, one family, I always say like Hamilton's a big city, but when you have three different Italian mafia families, it's like too many chefs in the kitchen. You just know it, one of one of those days things were going to boil. And it was in 97 when the third family, the Musitano brothers, decided to enlist one of their biker enforcers uh, to take Johnny Pops and his underboss out. And his underboss was killed a few weeks later in Niagara Falls right at his front door when he answered it. Man, just people getting whacked left and right. I mean, yeah, well, it's a target-rich environment. I mean, but whenever, when, the, when the Violis relocated to Hamilton, right, and you've got the brothers now, but there's still some whacking going on because I'm sitting here looking at, tell us about Vito Rizzuto hiding in the cupboard at the social club. Yeah, that was like... what. After Paolo Violi and his brothers were murdered because he had let that undercover in and exposed the mafia, the Rizzutos saw that as a golden opportunity. To, it's a power play. It's a takeover. And, you know, takeovers in the mob aren't like a corporate merge. They're, they're going to be, they're gonna it's be a murders. Hostile, it's a hostile takeover. Yeah. It's, it's a little rough, let's say. And, uh, and that's exactly what happened. The Rizzutos were responsible for all those uh, underworld hits, and they took over. Because the Rizzutos are still part of the Bonanno family, when the Bonanos, the actual Bonanno family in New York City, had that, and again, Joe Pastone could talk about this even better, uh, you had that sunny red, sunny black, the two captains in the Bonanno family in New York who hated each other, uh, it was uh, sunny, sunny black who decided, let's lure uh, the other half of the family, the three captains, to a meeting, we'll extend the olive branch, you know, we'll patch things over, but it was a ruse. They had brought in two foreign shooters. Uh, one of them was Vito Rizzuto and the other was uh, George Shaja from Montreal. And Vito Rizzuto was one of those shooters hiding in the closet in that Brooklyn social club that came out on a queue and blasted away the three made guys on the other side of the Bonanno family. And it wasn't until years later that Vito got ratted out by then Banano boss, Joey Messino, because Joey back in the early 80s was an up and comer. So really, I'm getting so goddamn confused. I'm trying to keep a scorecard here. Who's getting whacked? The only thing I know for <laughs> sure is, Stephen, is you haven't been whacked yet because you're on the podcast with us. I mean, <laughs> no honor among thieves. I always say sure. I need like a, you need, you really do need like one of those big, we used to call them I2 charts. You get the Intel yep. analyst. You have mm -hmm. one person is just like, tentacles of like dozens of people it's my wife always says my wife says you're always confusing us like and i'm like i'm ah i, I think because i'm biased because you know you, you're so used to these names but there's just too many almost but but that was one of the challenges doing it in organized crime investigations because one of the guys we talked to on one of our episodes dominic polifrone was one of the guys you've talked to him brought down the iceman richard kuklinski i mean the they everybody talks about there's loyalty, but no, there wasn't a whole lot of loyalty because even the guys in the mobs they had to earn, so they would work with other families, or they would do other things. I mean, Omerta sounds like this code of silence sounds like it works really good until, you know, even Sammy the Bull Gravano, you know, John Gotti's guy, he's flipped. You know, we think he's that's that's why they think he's one of the reasons that uh, Kuklinski got whacked is because 
uh, you know, of Sammy the Bull. So and how they made that happen in prison. But yeah, I mean, look, Steve said it, uh, Murph said it, refund. There is no honor among thieves. I mean, if they can whack you and get away with it, I mean, I used to think The Sopranos was just a lot of Hollywood. Then I realized, you know, there's probably not enough death and destruction, <laughs> you know, in The Sopranos. They're they're vicious. I mean, just cold blooded. It's holy cow. The you know the the uh, loyalty that they give to the family, it, it comes before your own family. The you know the crime family comes first over everything. It's unbelievable. But that's where they become disillusioned because it's especially when they go to jail. Oh, we'll take care of your family. We'll send you money. A lot of these guys realize this is a load of shit. everyone if you thought that was good wait till part two coming out thursday we dive into the details of organized crime in canada stephen matelski has just an encyclopedia knowledge of everything that's going on you have to stay tuned for the second part where we really get into and talk about what's a ceremony like to make a made man in the bonanno crime family in the meantime, go over and visit us at patreon.com slash game of crimes. We've got some great content, including the shit show that is Loudoun County and their cover up of sexual assaults and the incompetence of the school board. You got to hear what me and Murph think about that. Also, head on over to gameofcrimespodcast.com. Visit our website. We've got all of the pictures from this episode and others. Plus, you can join our email list. We have our merchandise there, all the fun stuff. Join us on the socials at Game of Crimes on Twitter, at Game of Crimes Podcast on Facebook, as it's currently called, and at Game of Crimes Podcast on Instagram. Send us an email at gameofcrimespodcast at gmail.com if you have any stories for us for, like, say, small-town police bother or maybe potential guests in the future. Otherwise, stay tuned with us. We're going to catch you here on Thursday for Episode 21, Part 2 of Stephen Matelski and the Inside Story of Canadian Organized Crime.